Okay, so I end up at this auction in Portland and I pick up a wine cabinet. I'm super pumped on it. I'm going to give it to my mom for her birthday. But before I can leave the auction, the former owner comes up to me and starts talking about it was her grandmother's. It's from World War II. And my grandma used to call it the Dybbuk box. And she said never to open it. I'm thinking like, okay, lady, you want your box back? Go ahead and have it, whatever. But no, she doesn't. She actually gets really weird when I offer it to her. She goes, no, 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 no. Like you bought it you keep it. So I'm thinking I'll give this wine cabinet to my mom for her birthday. I wanted to refinish it. Try to refinish it. As soon as I open that thing, every light bulb in the house ends up being completely smashed out. There's broken glass everywhere. It was unreal. And then I give it to my mom. And honestly, not a moment later, she has a stroke. And then after that, I start having these recurring nightmares. And you know what? Like, I had my family come and spend some time at my house right around that time, and every single one of them had the exact same nightmares. I start seeing shadow people. I start smelling cat urine. There's no cat in my house. There's no cats around my house. So stuff is getting way too weird for me, right? So I start to do a little bit of research on this thing. I fall asleep at my computer doing research. I wake up. And it feels like someone is breathing down my neck and all I can smell is jasmine. So I'm done. This thing is on eBay. I'm out. I don't want anything more to do with the dibbit box. Have you heard the story of... Welcome to the Just A Story Podcast. I'm Jake. And I'm Sam. And we're here to tell you a story. Each week we take a look at the stories that we tell over and over again. What our fears and fables, myths and misdeeds say about us as humans. We do want to welcome all of you back. To our lovely, lovely, I put a spell on you, happy Halloween, curse month. Right. The conclusion of our month on different types of curses and cursing. Not that type of cursing. We, we kind of already did that. We did. <laughs> Since it is the conclusion of our month, we did have our contest. We did, and we reached deep, deep into the dark, wonderful world of the Magical Mystery Hat. We did, and well, we have first, we have a few new reviewers. Oh, well, let's include them. We have Carmela D. and Taco Gur. Taco Gur. I've heard that. Really? Yeah, like just in the wild. I've heard of Taco Gur. I'm not sure what taco stand you're going to. They run out and people uh, fight over them. Is that what you do? Yes. When they're out of your taco you want? My, my bacon breakfast taco, yes. I grr. 
It's understandable. But, you know, we did ask everyone to reach out on iTunes, leaving reviews on different social media, such as Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, where you can still get in touch with us, subscribe. And we picked somebody from the last two years <laughs> to win a free t-shirt. Ooh, cool. And also a plug for our merch. I'm, I merch. I make merch. I mean, not technically. You design it. I design the designs that are on it, not even the apparel. So if you want to check out our merch store, you can find a link on our website, just storypod.com. And while you're there, you can check out our sources and artwork. That's all there. You can check that out. Or you can link to our Patreon page. You can. We do have a new Patreon as well. Miss Kira Dest. Thank you, Kira Dest. You're an enabler. You are. You're all enablers. Before we announce the winner, I want to thank everybody again for a wonderful two years. We've just grown and grown. We've well over a million downloads. We kind of can't believe you're here. Like, really, the idea of people like going about their daily life and listening to our show just cracks me up every time I think about it. <laughs> and we do appreciate it. And so our winner today is... Drumroll! Miss Sweet Attitude. Sweet Attitude gets a t-shirt. So just send us an email at justastorypod at gmail.com and we'll get in touch with you. And if anyone talks to us about anything and everything, you can send us an email there as well or... You can dial us up on the Urban Legend Hotline and that number is 512-222-3375. And... For the caller who started that confession last week about what you did with the bodies, please call back and finish it up. That was quite a cliffhanger. And leave your name and address. And a thumbprint and possibly your social because I have no plans to turn you in. Not any at all. So I wanted to do curses instead of affirmations this month. And there is a kind of person that I've been thinking about. It's just like sort of hard to explain. And it's like the quietly hateful person who like knows they can't say it out loud. Because like right now, I feel like our world is overpopulated with these extremely vocal, hateful people. And I think that they're basically what happened when all the quietly hateful people went and screamed into a bag after they didn't say it out loud. And that created some sort of tulpa form yes and this thought form is now in charge of all of our lives and just making things difficult every single day and so like to get your head around what kind of person i'm talking about the quietly hateful person is the enabler to use that word again of the kind of person that gets asked have you no decency have you no decency like the joe mccarthy's of the world are enabled by the quietly hateful people and so to them my curse is simple. May everything that you are afraid will happen to you actually happen to you. No, then we'd be enabling them. <laughs> if it all happened at once, they'd just disappear. They'd all be yeah. Right. So basically, you want every urban legend that we've talked about. Oh yeah, like to I, come true to the hateful people. Oh yes, I would like their daughters to all have shag bands, and I would like them. <laughs> You want them to get eaten by alligators in the sewers. You want their kids to get addicted to LSD. Yes. Through tattoos. Yes. And they get over Halloween. Yes. When they avoid the razors. These paranoid, <laughs> paranoid people. I want it all, everything they're worried about, I want to happen to them. And that is my curse. Well, that's a happy thought. It is to me. And I suppose it's not really, which is huh, kind of a head scratch. You're going to have to think on that one for a second. Oh, good. Well, Samantha, now that we're done doing that hateful thing, 
It's just like saying, I hope you get everything you ever wanted. I guess you're right. <laughs> Let's get back to the story at hand. And what's that? Well, there is an important little category of cursing that we have not hit yet. Is that possible? I feel like we've been cursing for months. The cursed object. Oh, you're right. The cursed object. And what better cursed object to start with than the Dybbuk box? I've seen it in a movie once. You're right. It was the kind of basis for the movie The Possession. With Denny. From Grey's Anatomy. Yes. (laughs) And Madis Yahoo. And Kira Sedgwick. Who unfortunately neither of them rap in the movie. No one raps. No one raps. That is that is a disappointing feature of that movie. But, you know, the cinematography in that movie was actually very, very good. Surprisingly decent movie. Yeah. Like, we watched it one night and we're like, this is going to be awful. And then we were like, wow, it's, it's, it's not. And then we were like kind of disappointed. <laughs> but this is a relatively recent urban legend that has been circulating for about 15 years. Because it starts all on eBay. Oh, I'm so glad Al Gore invented the internet. This is not a lockbox. It's a Dybbuk box. I think we just solved it. I think it's just the lockbox. It is. This is where Al Gore keeps his personality. <laughs> I'm sorry. That's funny. And the hanging chads. I just nerd laughed at that. But this all began in the scariest of places, eBay, when an item was listed in 2003. With a very extensive novel attached to it. But it wasn't a novel. No, it was... It was the the item description. Yes. It was just long-winded. Novella. Fine. (laughs) So I'll read some of it for you. During September of 2001, I attended an estate sale in Portland, Oregon. The items liquidated at this sale were from the estate of a woman who had passed away at the age of 103. A granddaughter of the woman told me that her grandmother had been born in Poland, where she grew up, married, raised a family, and lived until she was sent to a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Holocaust Center. Yes. She was the only member of her family who survived the camp. She survived the camp by escaping with some other prisoners and somehow making her way to Spain, where she lived until the end of the war. I was told that she acquired the small wine cabinet listed here, in Spain, and it was one of only three items that she brought with her when she immigrated to the United States. After the sale, I was approached by the woman's granddaughter who said, I see you got the Dybbuk box. She was referring to the wine cabinet. The grandmother had always called it a Dybbuk box. And when the girl asked her grandmother what was inside, her grandmother spit three times through her fingers and said, A Dybbuk. Kasalim. The grandmother went on to tell the girl that the wine cabinet was never, ever, to be opened. So far, we have a grandmother spitting three times through her fingers and telling her granddaughter never to open the box. We have her referring to it by a mysterious name. And we also have a Holocaust survivor story and kind of an immigrant story going on. I mean, I feel like we are just kind of doing a mid to late 90s period piece horror movie. I think the movie came out more recently. (laughs) No, you're right. There are a lot of kind of tropey flags right Mm, away mm -hmm. i'm sorry if i don't believe everything i read on ebay sorry what'd you buy oh gosh i'm trying to think of some of the worst things i've ordered from ebay no cursed objects no i didn't try any cursed objects so the granddaughter told me that her grandma had asked the box be buried with her which was not allowed by orthodox jewish burial 
The granddaughter did not know what a Dybbuk was and refused to open it. As her grandmother had been very emphatic and serious when she instructed her not to do so. I finally ended up offering to let her keep what seemed to be a sentimental keepsake. At that point, she was very insistent. She raised her voice to me and said, You bought it. You made a deal. When I tried to speak, she yelled, We don't want it. She began to cry, asked me to leave, and quickly walked away. And at that point, he thought, Well, this shit's ominous. I'm going to go bury it somewhere. No. He owned owned a small furniture refinishing business, and he decided to take it to his basement to clean up and give to his mom as a birthday gift. Because she likes wine? I'm guessing because it's a. I mean, like, what is the thought there? Like, why would he give it to his mom? Oh, it's just. Are they Jewish? It's not stated in this article. <laughs> okay. We'll get there. Okay. So, as of right now, at this point, he does not let on, and in the story, that there's anything related to Judaism because he doesn't know what a dipic is. Right. And he hasn't opened the box yet. But so, he's going to, even though he knows that they never were supposed to. Of course. Okay. The story would end very quickly. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. So he leaves the box at his store. After about a half hour, I got a call on my cell phone. The call was from my salesperson. She was absolutely hysterical and screaming that someone was in my workshop breaking glass and swearing. Furthermore, the intruder had locked the iron security gates and the emergency exit, and she couldn't get out. As I told her to call the police, my cell phone battery went dead. I hit speeds of 100 miles per hour getting back to the shop. When I arrived, I found the gates locked. I went inside and found my employee on the floor in a corner of my office, sobbing hysterically. I ran to the basement and went downstairs. At the bottom of the stairs, I was hit by an overpowering, unmistakable odor of cat urine. Ew. The lights didn't work. All of the light bulbs in the basement were broken. I did not find an intruder, however. I should also add that there was only one entrance to the basement. It would have been impossible for anyone to leave without meeting me head on. Then, things got worse. I have a problem with him saying he reached speeds of 100 miles an hour getting back to the shop. I don't know why that details. It just seems like superfluous and weird. So, he doesn't connect any of this to the box yet. And he begins to refinish the cabinet. And he opens it. And And he dies. No. Find some interesting things inside. Okay. One 1928 U.S. wheat penny. Okay. One 1925 U.S. wheat penny. One small lock of blonde hair bound with a string. One small lock of black-brown hair bound with string. One small granite statue engraved and gilded with Hebrew letters. I've been told the letters spell out the word Shalom. Oh, one, that's spooky. Yeah, no. Shalom is Peace. spooky. Oh. <laughs> one dried rosebud. One golden wine cup. Rosebud. One very strange black cast iron candlestick holder with octopus legs. So as he's cleaning it, he notices that there's an inscription in Hebrew carved into the back of the cabinet. Oh my. He doesn't know what it could be. On October 31st, 2001. Oh, that's Halloween. Oh, it is. How spooky. My mother came to my shop. We were going to have lunch together, but before we were going to leave, I gave her the wine cabinet. She seemed to like it. While she examined it, I went to make a phone call. I hadn't been out of sight more than five minutes when one of my employees came running into my office, saying that something was wrong with my mom. What was wrong with his mom? When I went back to see what the matter was, I found my mom sitting in a chair beside the cabinet. Her face had no expression, but tears were streaming down her cheeks. No matter how I tried to get her to respond, she would not. 
She could not. It turned out that my mother had suffered a stroke. That's terrible. It is terrible. So as she was recovering, he notes that he is able to communicate with her by her pointing to letters of the alphabet on a board. And that's a oh, common... Oh, like a Ouija board. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> I know people are going to think that that's a very common tool right. used in cases like this. We've oh, seen like Diving a, Bell and the Butterfly. We know. There you go. Like a word board. When I asked her the following day how she was doing, she teared up and spelled out the word N-O-G-I-F-T. Well, she was sad because he didn't give her a present. Wait. He did. Wait. That's what he said. He's like, no, I got you a gift. But she became even more upset and spelled out the words H-A-T-E-G-I-F-T. Hate gift. So she's just, she's, they sound Jewish. <laughs> That's so wrong. <laughs> Been watching too much Seinfeld. Yeah, I know. I laughed and told her not to worry. I told her I was sorry she didn't like the cabinet and that I would get her anything she wanted if she would promise to get well soon. Still, I didn't associate anything that happened with the cabinet itself or anything paranormal. Frankly, I don't think I ever even used the term paranormal until the last month. I gave the cabinet to my sister and she kept it for a week and then gave it back, complaining that she couldn't get the doors to stay closed and they kept coming open. Yeah, I don't like that. I gave it to my brother and his wife who kept it for three days and gave it back, complaining that it smelled like jasmine flowers. His wife insisted that it put off an odor of cat urine. I gave it to my. So they can't agree on candles, I assume. <laughs> Hopefully, no one wants the cat urine candle. No, I don't know. I gave no, it to he's my... like, it smells so good. And she's like, no, it smells like cat pee. <laughs> I gave it to my girlfriend who asked me to sell it for her after only two days. I sold it the same day to a nice middle aged couple. Three days later, when I came up to open the shop for the day, I found the cabinet sitting at the front doors with a note that read, This has a bad darkness. I had no idea what that meant. Anyway, I ended up taking it home. No. I don't pick up on context at all. My girlfriend's in therapy because of it. Like, I mean, that's not a subtle hint. That's not like, do you like the stress? That's not like that. Can you imagine what he says when someone says, do you like the stress? Oh, are you wearing a dress? Exactly. <laughs> like, we're not picking up on the, the subtleties here. We're not. It's like he needs some guy in the audience going, don't go in the closet. You could don't. have saved him. You could have saved him. Then things got even worse. Since worse than your mother having a stroke? Apparently. Okay. Since the day I brought it home, I began having a strange recurring nightmare. I find myself walking with a friend I know well and trust. At some point in the dream, I find myself looking into the eyes of the person that I'm with. It's then that I realize that there's something different, something evil looking back at me. At that point in my dream, the person I'm with changes into what can only be described as the most gruesome, demonic-looking hag that I've ever seen. This hag proceeds then to beat the living tar out of me. Mm. I've awakened numerous times to find bruises and marks on myself. Where does he live? Oregon. Why does he say beat the tar out of you? Isn't that a southernism? (laughs) I don't know. About a month ago, however, my sister, my brother, and his wife came over to my house and spent the night. The following morning during breakfast, my sister complained that she had had a horrible nightmare. She said that she recalled having had it a couple of times before and went on to describe my nightmare exactly to the last detail. Now, the brother and wife had also had similar dreams while the box was in their possession, along with the owner's girlfriend. Now then, since my family discussion, it seems like all hell is breaking loose. 
For a week after, I started seeing what I can only describe as a shadow thing in my peripheral vision. In fact, numerous visitors to my house have claimed that they have seen these shadow things. I put the cabin in an outside storage unit and was awakened when the smoke alarm in the unit went off in the middle of the night. When I went to see what was burning, I opened the door and didn't see any smoke. However, I did get hit with the smell of cat urine. What is it with the cat urine? When I went back inside, the smell was there in my house. In all caps, he says, I do not own a cat and I never have. So stop asking in the comment section. I went back outside and grabbed the cabinet. I brought it back inside and tried to research it on the internet. While I was surfing the net, I fell asleep and once again had the same freaking nightmare. What was he doing before he went to sleep? Surfing the net. <laughs> You've got mail. Excuse you the age <laughs> on this, right? And this is when he finds that his house now smells like jasmine flowers. And he sees a huge shadow thing loping down the hall away from him. He says, I would destroy this thing in a second, except I really don't have any understanding of what I may or may not be dealing with. I am afraid, and I do mean afraid, that if I destroy the cabinet, whatever it is that seems to have come with the cabinet may just stay here with me. I've been told there are people who shop on eBay that understand these kinds of things and specifically look for these kinds of items. If you're one of these people, please, please buy this cabinet and do whatever you do with a thing like this. Help me. Uh Uh-huh. Keeps adding to the post. Dude needed a blog. Dude right? needed a blog. Like saying that at the end of the auction, whoever buys it, he will give him like sworn affidavit on all of this and provide like hospital, hospital records, documentation. Yeah. yeah. And then he updates it again a few days later saying, for those of you wanting to know if I'm still experiencing anything out of the ordinary, I thought everything was going okay until I got home on Friday. The 13th of June. Mm. And found that the fish in my freshwater aquarium, all 10, were dead. Not 13. 13 would have been better. So all 13, I mean, I'm sorry, 10. I got real spooky there for a second. We're dead. But it was on the Friday 13th. Oh my God. So that's kind of where the eBay listing ends. Aw, I thought he was going to keep going with it for like ever. Well, there's more to the story, don't worry. So it was quickly picked up once it went viral on the internet. Was that even a thing then? Did they have a word for yeah. it? No, I don't know if it was called that then. And it was written up quickly in the LA Times and the Forward, which is a Jewish East Coast newspaper. Okay. And they said, it's legit AF. Well, let's see. <laughs> so the LA Times said, the strange case of the bogey in the box is threatening to become an urban legend as big as any ghostly hitchhiker, fried rat, or stolen body part. In Chicago, Bull basketball fans have paused their online arguments over salary caps to post theories on what's in the box. Ditto with news groups, usually dedicated to Subaru ownership or NASCAR tickets. In Long Island, a group of particularly dedicated ghost hunters has found a Yahoo chat group dedicated solely to the box. Again, well dated. Tells you when this was made. And I have to say, they were dead on. It's made the big time. We're covering it. Oh, well, this is definitely the big time. I guess if you're an urban legend. You think they're all just sitting around waiting on us to talk about him? No one cares about my story about Jeff the Killer's third cousin. Yeah, no one does. (laughs) So this box was originally put up on the interwebs. By? A guy named Kevin Manis. Okay, what's he do? Well, he does own, like he says, a furniture before furbishing business i've also seen it called like an antique store okay 
So that checks out. Now, while the eBay listing is kind of the original story, if you start digging, you start to find more of the story. It becomes a little more interesting. Fantastical? (laughs) Of course. Complicated. And let me guess. You pulled that thread. Keep a lie simple. (laughs) So on a separate podcast interview, Kevin tells more of his story. The Kevin. The Kevin. The The one. One, okay. He says that after he called 911 when his mom was having a stroke, two people came in and he told them that they would have to leave. There was an emergency going on. Uh Uh-huh. But they said they were not leaving and revealed their FBI badges. Were they like men in black? Were they galaxy defenders? He goes on to say that 50 to 60 agents from everything to secret service to naturalization to FBI to the local sheriffs showed up and took everything related to electronics. Wait, why does he have electronics at an antique store? I don't know if they mean like his computer. Like his surveillance stuff or maybe like... Or if you, like you said early, uh, the other day, like does he have like a pawn shop? Yeah, a lot of people who have pawn shops call them antique shops when they talk about the things they have. And then he said he had bars on the windows. When he says like the security gates were locked when the employee was calling him. Right, like, so maybe that's, yeah, why does he have like a gate? Yeah, so uh, in my mind, it could easily be a pawn shop. And this is explainable, even though it's weird and he's getting it wrong. Like there's no way the Secret Service was there. Sorry. Unless it was money. Because remember, they do protect money too. Yeah. That's my thought. Is that's the only, but why like naturalization, like all that, they got like ICE officers and the Secret Service. I mean, his roll call is probably wrong, but if his electronics were in fact seized and he owned a pawn shop, maybe a criminal overlord of some kind pawned his electronics and they were trying to find them. Sure. I mean, that's the only way I can make that work. Sure. At the exact same time as mom said. Well, it's just bad luck. I've had that day. Don't, don't push me on that. Now, there is a paranormal witness about this. Oh, good. And it has interviews as well with all of the people that were involved. Like the sister and brother-in-law and all those people? Not them, but it has the employee. Oh, so she didn't die. She did not die. Has the mom. Okay. And she's better? She is better. And I think she did have a stroke. I think we can, that is real. That happened. She said on there that when she was having the stroke while looking at the box, she was seeing pure evil. She said, am I going to make it? Is this death? So like worst case scenario, I guess, is this is not paranormal. And it's just a very creative guy fictionalizing the story of his mother's real stroke. Like that is. I mean, he's definitely including some real events to it. And the employee really was freaked out and said that the light bulbs, like she corroborated all that. Yes. Okay. So the story often goes that it trades hands a bunch of times on eBay and everyone gets cursed and then passes it on. He's passing it on. So it does sell to a college student named Yusef Nietzsche. That sounds easy to trace, right? A name that it's not like it sold to John Smith. You're right, but there is no records of this guy anywhere. How do you explain that? Great question. Is he a ghost? Maybe he's a Soviet spy, and he sold a computer to... (laughs) Well, that would make more sense than anything that is put forward so far. Now, on the Paranormal Witness episode, they have a guy named Brian Grubbs, who is a college student that claims to be the roommate 
to a person named Sam in the episode. Hard to say if Sam is the alias for Nietzsche or what. Or if that was just a name he made up for the internet. Who knows? So maybe it's just some dude named Sam. Could be. Maybe he thought since the writer of this post was like hinting that this thing had like Jewish connections and like Jewish lore attached to it. If he changed his name to something that sounded ethnic, ethnic, (laughs) Yosef is pretty Jewish. I mean, maybe he just thought that that would give him that extra boost of luck or make the object connect with him. I don't know. Maybe he just made it up. (laughs) So Brian grubs yes he says that they would have parties and invite people to come over and see the box and kind of use his gag and play pranks on people but then they started having bug infestations they're college students yeah i know should have cleaned with the pizza and like electronic problems and laptops crashing they're college students and sam begins to lose his hair they're college students and that's regrettable and i'm sorry that happened to you sam but happens to a lot of guys it's okay so yosef Decides to put it up on eBay, so we're told. That seems to be the way to get rid of the box. Right. And a college professor named Jason Haxton, who's in the same town of Kirksville, Missouri. It's not a big town. No, decides to buy it. Uh Uh-huh. Because he hears about it from Yosef's roommate, one of his students. So he purchases it on eBay instead of just walking over and handing him cash? Yes. And he's never seen Yosef? Not to my knowledge. Okay. So Jason Haxton is the director for the Museum of Osteopathic Medicine at A.T. Stills University. And he has an interest in kind of like occult objects and and things like that. He has like a little collection of stuff. So that interest was there. His interest was there to purchase the item. He's not out of nowhere. Right. And so he decides once he gets this item and starts to experience these kind of weird experiences like everyone's been talking about, seeing things, Mm -hmm. odd feelings, odd smells. He's going to investigate this. He starts developing like hives and coughing up blood and head to toe welts. Does he just have like yellow fever or something? (laughs) No. Okay. And this investigation is recounted in his book that he wrote. The Dybbuk Box. Oh, he, he read a book on it. Yes, which was uh, published before the movie came out. Mm-hmm. And so he finally, through, he describes pretty arduous research to track down the original owner of the box, not the Polish lady who was dead, Kevin Manis, the guy that put it up on eBay. Okay. But it's only sold on eBay like once and to twice. a guy that, well, yeah, twice. And the guy lived in his town. That yeah. doesn't sound arduous. So he might be in Oregon or whatever, but still, Yosef, in theory, lives with Brian, and he should probably have the seller's like eBay handle, which could be pretty easily researched. I mean, like it would take me 15 or 20 minutes to figure that out. And I guess if they had a return address. Yeah. He says it was hard. <laughs> I'm sure he says a lot of things. Well, so he finally, after much discussion, convinces Kevin Manis... To track down the people that he bought the box from. Now, originally, Kevin Manis goes to find them and cannot find it. Hmm. Like the location of the house where he bought right. it? But wasn't it local? Yes. Okay. Now, after more and more pushing by Haxton, he is able to track them down. So Manis recounts to Haxton. So this is now third hand. Right. Okay. That he is able to speak to a relative and gets more information on the story of the Dybbuk box. Okay. 
So he talks to Sophie, who lived with the original owner in Poland. Before the Holocaust. Presumably. And I thought her whole family died. Yeah, no. Okay. They throw in some other folklore in there with it now. No. You get some, like, golem folklore thrown in. No. Saying that they and they created this, like, embroidered Ouija board-like creation and used a pendulum to try to call a spirit forth to help fight the Nazis. Sure. I mean, like, I can see kids doing that. I, something I would have done when I was a kid. But once they call the spirit the Dybbuk, it's not nice and wants to be released onto the world. And at that moment, they were still like, nah. They were like, mm, let's trap it in this box. But it could have ended the war. Sophie, wrong choice. This was a comic. You would have gotten superpowers. Come on. <laughs> Actually, there is an amazing comic about a golem by Steve Niles. Oh, I forgot about that. It's, it's like excellent. a four issue series and it's mm. absolutely gorgeous. And you should go find it and read it and just like enjoy it because it's beautiful. Just pause. Isn't it black and white? Yes, it's, great. it's beautiful. So now he does refuse to give Haxton their last name or any information. He just gives them the story. Why is he so invested in protecting their privacy? Good question. So Haxton does some more research into it. He speaks with an Orthodox Jewish bookkeeper, Rebecca Ettery, who lives in Brooklyn and whose father studied Kabbalah. Ettery tells him that the two doors on the outside open up just like the Holy Closet or an Aran Hokadish, a receptacle for the Torah scrolls. Mm-hmm. She also says, and I saw round metal hoops on the inside of the doors that would hold scrolls. This particular size would be used when going to comfort the family of the deceased. So it's just like a little travel Torah kit. Yeah. Yeah. Like it's a mobile kit. So wait, I have another question. So he's a furniture refinisher, right? Yes. So he refinished it before he gave it to his mom. Presumably. Yeah. He like cleaned it up. But isn't it missing like one of the rings and the doors are all scratched up? In the pictures it is. Okay, so, huh, interesting. So either gave it to his mom, not refinished, in which case, hate gift, uh, but or this is trauma that it is like brought on itself. Who knows? Okay. So, Edward said she is convinced the box was sacred and had been intentionally stuffed with some sort of spirit. This was done deliberately for a specific purpose. She believed that to put an end to the misfortunes, the box needed a formal Jewish burial involving a 10-man minyan, a prayer group. Haxton consulted with rabbis to try to figure out a way to seal the dibbuk in the box again. Apparently successful, he took the freshly resealed box and hid it at a secret location, which he will not reveal. He also says that it now has rejuvenating properties. What do you mean? Like... He feels younger now. I think that's just selling his book. <laughs> that makes you feel better. So there are a lot of inconsistencies in the story. Okay, so I have one. Yes. I don't think that Yosef existed. Right. I mean, there's just no records of him. It's it's hard. It's hard to believe a story when one of the... Principles. Is, just won't show up. I think Haxton was probably Yosef. Very possible. Very, very possible. Especially because he could use like... Two addresses in town if you wanted to like create a like another transaction trail. Yeah. Like oh to his office and then to his -hmm. house. Or have it shipped to one of his students. Right. And then my other question is if they really were having like keggers and shit where they went and looked at the Dybbuk box. What the fuck was he doing hanging out with his students? Well, in that story, Eosef owned it. 
And so Haxton wasn't there. Uh Uh-huh. I know he was there. There are other inconsistencies, too. In another interview, Manus said, I'm Jewish. I know what a Dybbuk is. It's the kind of thing used to scare children. Okay, and yet he was told, I am told, it says Shalom. Yes, he's very, very ignorant of this information in his original telling of the story. Um, The dates change in different interviews of the dates that he gave it to his mother. Uh Uh-huh. By a lot or a little? A few days. Yeah, but it goes from Halloween to like October 28th, which is just kind of a day. (laughs) Maybe the day you're listening to this podcast. Of course, the FBI thing, I think that's just like complicating a lie. And you're complicating a story that doesn't need to be there. I mean, I think they may have raided a shop once, but I doubt his mother was lying on the floor having like a stroke, having a stroke while they were like, like no. no, we won't stop. We're not going to respect this human life as we take these electronics. We couldn't do this in a minute. <laughs> uh, and then also there's like the Spain-Poland thing, which really never comes up again in any of their interviews, that she escaped right. from the Nazi concentration camp, went to Spain, and then immigrated. And she was able to interview someone from Poland that knew her, even though her whole family died. Well, and then the question about that becomes, if they lived together in Poland and they were playing with the Dybbuk box, where was the Dybbuk box when she was in the concentration camps? Exactly. And how did she... Like, It doesn't make sense. It's not like she would have had it in the camps. That's not... They wouldn't have been like, cool, take that with you as we take your hair and shoes but there are some just interesting components to the story where I cannot kind of disavow the entire thing, even my skeptical brain. I don't think he faked the box existing. Well, let's look at the box. Let's, let's look what's in it. What's in the box? What's in the box? So as we talked about, the box is not a wine cabinet, which they just keep calling it that still. They think that because it has the grapes. Right. Which is a common feature on many Aran Hakadeshes. Is it the plural? Going with that? On the outside, there is this mystical text or writing. Mm-hmm. And it's legit there. You can see it in pictures. Oh, yeah, it's there. All right, cool. We believe it. So it's the Shema, mm-hmm. which are the first two words of a section of the Torah and is also a prayer that usually serves as a centerpiece for morning and evening Jewish prayer services. Which can be translated as, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. So it's not, All who look unto this box shall perish. Yeah, it's not an Ark of the Covenant kind of thing. (laughs) So other items in there are the dried rosebud, golden wine cup, the octopus candlestick. And you don't think it looks that creepy. Like, you're you're not impressed with it. Yeah, I feel like you're primed. Yeah, I mean, I did look at it, and it is asymmetrical, which is an unusual feature. And truly, the legs do look like tentacles. They don't have suction cups or They something. do. Like, what? Yeah. I'm going to have to recheck that. Are they do in my mind? Exactly. But no, I, I'm kind of impressed with that candlestick. I think it's cool, at least. Um, and then the things I find interesting that I think give some more information into the, the Dybbuk box are the pennies, the uh-huh. two-beat pennies. Right, like they had in Poland and Spain. Right. And the locks of hair. Okay. So let's theorize. Take him at his word. She's put in the camps. Polish girl went to Spain, came to America. In America, she acquired pennies and put them in the box. One, that means she would have opened the box. She opened the box. She opened the box while living in America. Two, 
those are not the birth dates of her children. So maybe they're for parents. Yeah, or lost loved ones. Yeah, people she lost and then she had hair that she kept or something. Right, could have kept locks of hair. The locks of hair could be from her children. They could not be related. Right, it could be two separate things. It could be her birth date and her husband's birth date. But it doesn't tie with the dates. Yeah. Yeah. She would have been born in 1900, right? right? And same with the kids. I originally thought maybe as kids, because when I was a kid, we'd always like find like wheat pennies or something like that, like some odd coin with our birthdays, and you keep that. Mm-hmm. And that was, like that, the year you were born. Right. right. But then that also, the, the dates don't line up. If she was in concentration camp, 30s, 40s, then... She obviously would not be having children in 1928. Although I guess she could have and they could have died there. Now I think about it. Because if she was born in 1901-ish, 1900-ish, she would definitely be the age of having children. So actually it could be her children. But she still would have had to pick them up in America. Oh yeah, yeah. I know. And then she would have had to have kept the locks of hair through the concentration camps. That would be more difficult, but... Possible, Possible. not out of the realm of possibility. And so it is really common for people to keep these kind of fetishistic items. Mm -hmm. Bill Ellis, who we love, the folklorist, said that pennies and locks of hair fall under a common fetish territory. It was not uncommon for people to hunt through their change, and when they found their birth date of a child, to put that aside as a life token of the child. You also have two locks of hair. This is a very common tradition, especially for preserving a keepsake of a dead family member. These things would incorporate a memory or some part of a life spirit. I personally think that they might be like tokens of dead children. Right, but she was... That were, that were gotten later. You know, the pennies were picked up later in life. She just saw them and thought... Thought of her kids. Yeah, I can buy kids. that. Yeah. She would have immigrated... At least in her 30s, too. No, later. No, 40s. In her 40s. And she had more kids because she was someone's grandmother. In theory. Okay. Well, yeah, I mean, you can. Again, not out of the realm of possibility. Okay. But, I mean, important point, she opened the box to put them in there. She absolutely opened the box. And also, she put them in there with a creepy demon. Right. And so, if she really did think there was some creepy evil demon divic thing in there, why would she open it up to put in fetish items for something she probably loved. Well, maybe let's put that on its head and say maybe she was cursing someone. Oh, you know, know what I thought you were going to say? Mm. As a protective element. I don't hate that. But, I'll, but the timeline with her immigration just does not seem to add up to me. I like my gut feeling about the box is that it is never existed outside of America. Yeah. And so one other thing that's in there is the small granite slab with the Hebrew word shalom. Ooh. Yeah, it's very creepy. So on the forward, that Jewish newspaper website, they wrote, readers even slightly familiar with Jewish culture will find themselves more exasperated than frightened by Haxton's dibbock. <laughs> there is many dibbock box associated mishaps are eerie. Many of the book's Jewish details are risable. Risable? I love that word. Making this dibbock about as scary as a Wonder Bread bagel. Shut up. That is the best burn I've so ever good. heard. For example, one of the magic items contained in the box is a small granite slab sculpture with the word shalom carved in Hebrew. A wide eyed Haxton sees it as a spiritual power source. 
I, on the other hand, only see a synagogue gift shop tchotchke. <laughs> I want to pinch his cheeks. Like, I think he's the greatest. Okay, so we've accounted for all of the items in the box, except the the demon. The dibbic? The dibbic itself. Yes. So demon, complete misnomer. It's not a demon. It's not a demon. It's dibbic. Is a real thing. Maybe it's because they both start with D and that's all. No, it just sounds scary. It does sound scary. But you know, just like demons, it's one of those things that it is part of the Jewish culture and folklore. And like one rabbi says, it's essentially a kook subject, but I can never say that it's impossible because obviously there's precedent for these things that are recorded in different religious traditions, including my own. Hmm. So Encyclopedia Mythica describes it as a disembodied spirit possessing a living body that belongs to another soul and usually talks from that person's mouth. Oh, I'm getting a theory. Oh, I'm getting a theory. Continue. So when it really came into this popular consciousness was in the early 20th century when Anski wrote a play called The Dybbuk. It was written and reworked between the 1912 and 1917 in Ruddish and Yiddish. And this playwright drew on his ethnographic expedition to Jewish Schultz in Eastern Europe. In the play, the Dybbuk is the true love of the victim. But this love is against the arranged marriage that she has signed up for. Mm -hmm. And so he eventually possesses his true love. Ultimately, it's a consensual experience. It's a love story. I think it's a really interesting interpretation, like a weird way to kind of make literal the metaphors we use about love. It is interesting. I think it's pretty cool. I mean, it's it's stuck around. Leonard Bernstein did a ballet. Cool. And Tony Kushner rewrote it in 1998. I'd see that. But the tradition of Dybbuk's is much older. Medieval Ashkenazi Jews described it as a deceased soul who entered and possessed a living person. It was a contraction of Devok Mirth Ra'ah, meaning adhered to by an evil spirit. There are about a dozen narratives from that time. It's generally seen as a human soul, not some evil demon. And it's thought to be the soul of someone whose sins were so egregious that they're denied entry into a kind of purgatory-ish state. So they're stuck between worlds, and the soul seeks respite in the body of a human. And the host may be able to seek out a Kabbalistic practitioner or exorcist that can help purify the soul and help facilitate them to move on. Mm -hmm. Move to the light. So that's not what this box is. Right? Right? Okay. So early stories were this kind of cautionary tale against a life of sin. And by the 18th century, Hasidic Jews were using the stories to show the prowess of a rabbi. And so a lot of them are kind of these exorcism stories. Okay. Once you get into more modern times. And as I was reading about it, I thought about our, our angel exorcism mm-hmm. that we talked oh, I about. I that story. In that episode. And it's a lot, it's a very similar traditions. If mm-hmm. you want to remember that or we're going to check it out if you haven't listened to it yet. But nowhere in the folkloric literature is there any precedent for a Dybbuk inhabiting a box or any other inanimate object. So their theory is wrong. Like their theory that it's like a mini golem, like a mini golem tulpa. And that's like added on later. Yeah, like in the box, living in the box, just hanging out, just like waiting to 
pick on you. I, it's wrong. That's what the old lady told him. Well, no, she didn't. <laughs> False. So, what I think. Yes. Like, let's assume everything is true. No. <laughs> let's Up assume. To point? Like, the stroke and the cat urine and, like, the weird feeling and the bad dreams. So, like, the eBay listing is true. The original story. Right, before the Secret Service comes. Okay. But I like that part. I know, I do too. And let's assume that the box with these items in it existed and it was not fabricated for the purposes of a hoax. I think, my gut feeling about it, again, I don't have any reason to think this, is that it's from America. Okay. And I believe that maybe this woman's children were killed by something she perceived as a Dybbuk. And so she put the items in the box and called it the Dybbuk box because it's where you put things when the Dybbuk took them. Like something bad attached to her kids and they died before they were supposed to. And she put it in there and she never wanted it open. And now it wants to fucking go home. Okay, I mean, I think that's an interesting idea. I mean, if I'm writing the screenplay. I think that the box is real. Like it existed with all the contents. And the contents are real. Mm Mm-hmm. And that he probably did buy it at a garage sale, state sale. Someone came into his shop and sold it to him. And he made up the story after that. But his mom really did have the stroke. Okay. Incorporating real facts into a story just makes it more believable. Yeah. But you're right. She did have the stroke and she says it happened when she was with the box. I think it wants to go home. What does? The box. The box wants to go home? Uh-huh. It wants to go back to its family. Who owns the box? Where's the box gotten consciousness? With the items that were put in there, like in love and affection. Okay, I could see that. Like, that's a very, very personal artifact, hair. You know, like hair and these little treasures. It's somebody's, like, little mosaic of memory, and it wants to be with its people. Okay, if you want to go full on, there you go. That's the idea. I like it. I mean... I like it better than the Dybbuk. I'm just saying rooster spurs and funeral cards don't show up in empty dressers. Look, <laughs> I'm not saying I can explain everything. I can't explain all of this away. I mean, I can tell you right now, he made up a lot of this. That's that. The cat bad. urine is such a weird thing to keep bringing up. Like, sure, and like maybe the lady had cats. Like, <laughs> oh, that's a good idea. I've been in people's houses that like have bad cats. Oh, me too. <laughs> so I used to go to my friend's grandpa's house where we'd practice uh-huh. because like he, music. Couldn't, he couldn't hear. <laughs> oh God, Jacob, this is terrible. I would not have married you if I knew this story. But he had cats and like they. That was the trade off. Yeah. It was the trade off. And the house smelled like that. And when we would leave and like we'd take our our gear from there, it would smell like cat urine. Uh huh. So I could see that. I could see that. But I like that idea of, of having that kind of personal connections and just there's the energy there. You know, yeah. if we're going to go full on. Supernatural. Throwing science We're just going to do it. Fine. But I mean, I like that idea. I like that idea of the energy kind of sticking to the items in the box and just kind of transferring some power onto it. So that's kind of an interesting idea. And it's very prevalent through all of like magic lore, like conjuring lore, like cursing lore. Like energy kind of being attached to things. Yes. And interestingly enough... The separation between ghosties, kind of the haunted part, and magic, spell casting, etc., seems to be the idea that you can put the energy there. Like, that seems to be the line of demarcation, 
is the intention and the manipulation. Intention's always the important part. Isn't it? So how does this kind of active magic work? Well, according to Joseph Frazier. That guy? That guy. Writer of the Golden Bough. Yeah, that one. It's not science. And you need no to, shit, Sherlock. And you need to let that idea go. No. <laughs> he says, in short, magic is always an art, never a science. The very idea of science is lacking in the undeveloped mind. There it is. We must. We must insult everyone as we dispense our knowledge. few basic rules about magic. There are essentially two. Like affects like. That used to be science. So did magic. And once contact has occurred, the distance no longer matters. People claim that science. Right? Homeopathy. So he goes on to explain. There are basically two rules of magic. He says, first, like produces like, or that effect resembles its cause. Second, that things once have once been in contact with each other continue to act on each other at a distance after the physical contact has been severed. The former principle is called the law of similarity, and the latter, the law of contact or the law of contagion. Charms based on the law of similarity are called homeopathic or imitative magic. Still is magic. (laughs) Charms based on law of contact or contagion are called contagious magic. So a good example of what similarity magic is, is is like in homeopathy, what is is supposedly... You can keep diluting a substance down to a millionth degree. And even though it once had contact with something, it still retains its power. Okay. So like what? What would you have contact with? Some sort of herb. And you just keep diluting oh, it down. Oh, the essence. It's the, like the es- yes. essence. Yes. And so it's kind of the same thing in this kind of magic. So these both fall under a broader umbrella of sympathetic magic. And the law of contagion is especially potent when dealing with curses. The magical effect which has been imparted to a specific item can infect whatever touches it. A cursed object will cause bad luck to anyone who touches, owns, or takes possession of it. Sometimes, even if that cursed object is discarded or destroyed afterward. Like a Dybbuk box. I think we should take a minute and be helpful. Do we have to? And do the Lord's work. The Lord? I didn't say which Lord. Okay. <laughs> let's let's start with like some curse mechanics and a curse primer and like a little questionnaire. Like think of this as your BuzzFeed quiz of how do you know if you're cursed or not? I'm good. Are you having trouble sleeping? Yes. I have a three-year-old. Oh, you have a three-year-old, not a curse. Debatable. <laughs> I have a small demon living in my house. Two. Have you been ill a lot recently? Yes, I see children all day. Well, and there was that chili cook-off that you judged. Yeah, don't recommend. (laughs) Well, that's concerning. It was. (laughs) (laughs) Have you had any, like, unexplained bruising or scratches or anything like that? Oh, they're explainable. Okay, then no, you haven't. Well, good, that takes us out of haunting territory. We can get back to the curse territory. Have you tried divination? No. (laughs) Have you looked into like a crystal ball or a mirror or just like meditated and thought about whether or not you're cursed? Yeah, no. No. Have you done a tarot reading? No. Have you casted any lots? Uh, No, I'm not a pirate. (laughs) 
Well, you can always ask your deity or your spirit or your guide to send you a sign. But it's best to not leave these things up to chance. So what you need to do is ask for a sign for several days in a row. But it needs to be very specific and you need to designate it and discuss it thoroughly with your spirit guide. So I'm going to put it out into the universe. No, you're going to directly address your spirit guide. It's very different. What if the universe is my spirit guide? That's impossible. YOLO. Fuck you. (laughs) Hashtag YOLO. Fuck you. But when you're in direct communication with your spirit guide, wherever you go to communicate with your spirit guide, mine was in Petra. You need to ask them to send you a sign for a repeated number of days. And like, for example, you could ask to see a raccoon three days in a row. And then you would know if you're cursed. What about a black cat? We would have had to arrange that previously. And if you're already in the pattern of seeing the mysterious black cat appear on our porch every night to just come and hang out and look at us. It's pretty. I love it. She's so sweet. It's a he. Okay. Maybe. We'll see. 50-50 chance. 49-51. Okay. But if they send you your sign, then you can pretty much decide that you're cursed. And that's fine. We have a way to fix it. But the other way is like what really pushes it over the edge is when you have bad luck that exceeds chance. Not just like, uh, I always spill my coffee, which I do. But this like chain of unfortunate events. Clumsiness is not a curse. It is, but it's not. Oh, no. You're cursed always. I'm off. Jacob. I probably am cursed. <laughs> I am not nice. Someone's been a curse on me by now. A kind of chain of events that would indicate that you are truly and well cursed. You like spill your coffee on your phone while you're driving, have a wreck, miss a meeting, makes you lose your job, and then you lose your apartment because you lost your job, and then you have to have a long distance relationship, and then you're doing naked Skype because that's what you do when you're in a long distance relationship, but you accidentally live stream it to your boss, and then you lose that job. Is this a personal story? No. Okay. Mm-mm. Just checking. So you may get nervous if you start noticing these things happening, and you shouldn't because panic and anxiety are actually part of the curse and feed into its energy and make it stronger. Oh, so Xanax fixes them. No, but I have a list of things that do. Oh, good. So you should not touch it, first of all. What? Whatever cursed object is bringing this upon you. So don't touch the Dybbuk box. Don't touch it. If you do have to touch it, wear gloves, use tongs, etc. Remove it from your home and or space. You might consider taking it to a crossroads and finishing the ritual there. But whatever you do, do not bring it inside. Now here's some hex-breaking tactics from a variety of different traditions. And you can just, you know, apply as needed. You can dip, wash, boil, or fry an object in cleansing water. So is the frying one from the south? Probably. Using purified water from a living source, like a river or ocean, is ideal. And you can infuse this with herbs as long as you get their essence. Hot oil is good for destroying the object, but be careful for burns. Good advice. You can toss it in a fire. Um, you can toss it in a living body of water. You can abandon it at a crossroads. I've seen a lot of cursed kittens. You can give it to someone else, which is a bitchy way it's to deal nice. with the curse. <laughs> you can pee on it. Is it a jellyfish? It is much like a jellyfish. You can bury it. You can pour salt on it. You can circle the object three times in salt or pour salt into your hand and pass over the object three times and then toss the salt in a fire. Really taking care of it. It's done. Let a stone absorb the curse and then toss the stone away. And you can perform a hex-breaking spell, assuming you had knowledge of how to do so. And also, fun fact, copper has curse-reducing properties. Like a penny. 
they say suggest a penny, a penny and salt. Hmm. Oh. Like in the Dybbuk box. Like in the Dybbuk box. Oh, this was just supposed to be silly. And then according to witchcraft.com, we are, it is important to make a distinction here because you need to know if you have a cursed item or a haunted item. If an evil spirit is clinging to an object, there are a number of ways to remove the curse. You can destroy the object or banish the evil spirit or use an exorcism. So you have a variety of Easy options. Easy peasy. Yeah, just... So we've talked about a lot of cursed objects over the last 101 episodes. Uh, has it been that long? Like Annabelle. The doll. Yes. And all those haunted puppets. And then we recently mentioned voodoo dolls. Mm-hmm. Which are not really cursed. Well, yeah, they are. It depends on how you look at it. <laughs> uh, we've talked about King Tut's tomb. Very cursed. Definitely cursed by Aleister Crowley, no doubt. We've talked about the Myrtle's Mirror. Also definitely haunted. Definitely haunted. Not mm, really. Not really. Uh, oh, one we haven't <laughs> debunked. Otzi, the Iceman. Yeah, I find him very credible. Truly an ancient curse. Those are the best kind. And now we will talk about one more. When you Google cursed objects, as people who listen to this podcast are probably want to do, you will find a list. And then you'll find another list. You'll find another list. And on this list, you'll find the same 15 objects shuffled and prepared for consumption. (laughs) Copy pasted. And on all of these lists, you will see the woman from limb statue. Oh, no. Now, it was originally made around 3500 BCE in Cyprus. And then it was found in 1878 in Eastern Europe, which is a country. It's more scary when it's vague. Right? I wish people would learn that. And it has killed so many people that the statue is known as the goddess of death. This is scary. Isn't it? According to the legend, the statue was first owned by a nobleman named Lord Alfont. And Lord Alfont had a beautiful family. And there were seven of them, all told. There were not seven, six years later, for the whole family had perished. No. Yes, that's right. Just six years after receiving the statue, his entire family was dead. Should have peed on it. Should have peed on it. And then the statue went to Ivor Manucci. And poor Ivor Manucci met the same fate as Lord Alfont. Within four years, he and his family had all perished. Should have peed on it. Should have peed on it. Next, Lord Thompson Knoll. Again, the lady from Lim claimed... The goddess of death. Claimed an entire family. <laughs> the statue disappeared for a while. She went walkabout in Eastern Europe. And then she reappeared, belonging to a, a noble knight, Sir Alan Biverbrook. It's the best names. <laughs> They really are. They have flair. Now, we all know that it may be a man's world, but she's doing her best to level the playing field. Really? She strikes again. Feminist goddess of death will not be owned by any man, she says. And so, Sir Alan Biverbrook, his wife and daughters, yes, she's not that much of a feminist, all die. Oh, no, no. Sir Alan Biverbrook doesn't die, so she just kills the women. Maybe I've built her up as too much of an icon. 
And he has two sons still living, so apparently very off on that measure. <laughs> Good try. So Biverbrook gets wise to what this broad is up to. Ships her off to a museum. Oh, good call. The Royal Scottish Museum. But then the curator who tries to display her for the male gaze. Really? You're going there? Struck down in the prime of his life. So that happened? No, it didn't happen. That's like all bullshit. It's all made up. Like there's not one kernel of truth in it. Well, she exists. The statue exists. Lady of Limb. Yes. Or the Limba Lady. Yes, and she has been displayed in the Cyprus Museum since she was discovered in 1970. And so far as we know, no one has died because she exists. So is she a statue of death? No, she's a, like, you mean, like, what is the literal representation? Like, what is it supposed, she's a pregnant lady. She's a fertility goddess. Yeah, she's a bringer of life and things. Wow, they misinterpreted that a little. So she's naked and she's kind of like, Hanging out. You see a naked woman statue with a penis head. And she does have kind of a penis head. That's definitely true. And she's 36 centimeters high and made of limestone. And it's believed that using our context clues that she's an ancestor of Paphian Aphrodite. And the cult of that goddess was actually very well entrenched and well established in this region. And so she would have been revived in the shape of the Paphian goddess, and then later she would have become Aphrodite. And I have good news for you. Oh, really? Good news. What's that? You can buy a copy at the Cypress Museum gift shop for 165 euros. Oh, good. I'll buy it and send it to somebody. They can Google it. (laughs) But while we're on the topic of rocks and women. I like where you're going. Love is a battlefield. Pat Benatar is a rock goddess. It's true. Let's talk about another rock goddess. Okay. Or at least a magma goddess. (laughs) So let's talk about Pele. Now, she is a legendary Hawaiian goddess who makes her home in Kiloe's Halumaumaua crater. Now, hula groups often visit Kiloe to dance and leave offerings for Pele as a form of respect. It's probably a good thing to do. She sounds kind of like Marie Laveau. So Pele's story is very interesting. And of course, it has many iterations. So like the first Hawaiians, Pele came to Hawaii by a big canoe. She was a voyager. We were voyagers? Away, away. I'm sorry. Moana is like my the soundtrack of my life right now because I have a three-year-old. Now, she came from the mystical floating island from Kauai which was the place of her birth. She left there because she was fleeing her older sister, the sea goddess. In what had she done to her? In one version of the tale, she had fallen in love with her sister's husband. Yeah, that'll do it. So accompanied by several of her brothers and an egg containing her unborn baby sister, Pele escaped in a double-hulled canoe and flees north, her older sister in hot pursuit. I told you love was a battlefield. So they start, they go all the way up to the northwestern Hawaiian islands and kind of work her way down the islands because she comes to an island She kind of digs a fire pit to build a home, only to have her sister arrive and extinguish the flames. Because she's the sea goddess. Exactly. And she can do that. And Pele is the goddess of fire. Mm Mm-hmm. And chases her off. Now, when Pele reaches Maui, she builds her home high up on Helekala. I'm trying to pronounce these guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) In a cinder cone. 
now known as the Hill of Pele. So the volcano is so tall that it's beyond the sea's reach. But one day when Pele descends to Hana, her sister is waiting. Pele's still mortal at this point. This is happening on Hawaii, like on the island of Hawaii? On Maui. On Maui. So they fight and her sister tears Pele apart. The hillside where the bones are buried is called Keweo Pele, the bones of Pele. After the death of her physical form, Pele then is able to grow into her goddess form Mm. and travels in spirit form to the big island where she still makes her home to this day. Okay, that's when we get Hawaii. Yes. So Pele in her magma fire form is still creating land and the sea goddess, her sister, is still waiting at the ocean. That is epic. I love this story. I love the story and I love it even more when you trace the story of the islands that she went to in the order, it follows their geological evolution. So it's right. Yeah. And how many years later did we know it was right? Like, I mean, like, like yesterday. yesterday. <laughs> That's amazing. In the grand scheme of things. So she's this perfect goddess. She's the goddess of creation and destruction. There's fire and magma. But that creates lava rock, which creates land, right? Like, which. Exactly. So very cool. But it's, you don't want to get caught by the lava rock, and then you die. So, well, and you also don't want to get fallen magma. Yeah, <laughs> have your house burned. You know, we've talked about the history of the Hawaiian people in our Night Marchers episode, which was so much fun to do. It's still one of my favorites. So much fun, and talked about how we had a lot of Christian missionaries that came and tried to convert the Hawaiians. So one priestess known as Kapiolani was a great chieftainess who lived in the Sandwich Islands, Hawaii, who lived on the islands at this time. And she was fighting for the cause of Christianity against her people's native religion. And she was openly defying the priest of the terrible goddess, Pele. Right. And we also, in that episode where we talked about the Night Marchers, talked about the prevalence of taboo in native Hawaiian culture and the importance of adhering to and observing those. So she's in direct defiance in real time. She's like breaking tons of taboos. Right. And so Alfred Lord Tennyson wrote a poem about her. Capiolani. Are you going to read us a poem? Of course. It's been too long. It's been too long. It's time for a poem. When from the terrors of nature, people have fashioned and worship a spirit of evil. Blessed he, the voice of the teacher who calls to them, set yourselves free. Oh, I see. And we're, um, we're doing this. Yeah. Okay. Noble the Saxon who hurled at his idol a valorous weapon in olden England, great and greater and greatest of women, island heroine Capiolani, climbed the mountain and flung the berries and dared the goddess and freed the people of Hawaii. A people believing that Pele the goddess would wallow in fiery riot and revel on Kiolawe, dance in a fountain of flame with her devils, or shake with tears, thunder, and shatter her island, rolling her anger through blasted valley and flaring forest and blood-red cataracts down to the sea. His poems really are made to be read out loud, aren't they? Long as the lava light glares from the lava lake, dazing the starlight. Long as a silvery vapor in daylight over the mountain floats will the glory of Kapiolani be mingled with either on Hawaii. What said her priesthood? Woe to the island if ever a woman should handle or gather the berries of Pele. 
accursed were she, and woe to the island if ever a woman should climb to the dwelling of Pele the goddess. Accursed was she. One from the sunrise dawned on his people, and slowly before him vanished shadow-like, god and goddesses. None but the terrible Pele remaining as Kapiolani ascended her mountain, baffled her priesthood, broke the taboo, dipped to the crater, called on the power adored by the Christian, and crying, I dare her, let Pele avenge herself. Into the flame below dashed the berries and drove the demon from Hawaii. I have so many mixed feelings about this poem because it's amazingly well constructed, but it's like... Oh, <laughs> right. I mean, you know, it's it's touching on like so, like the taboos, and mm. she takes the berries of Pele that no one's supposed to pick, and she goes and in a kind of a great showing. You know, it's it's done on purpose. Demonstration. Like, yes, everyone is there. the The Christian missionaries are there. The priests are there. The people are there, and she descends into the crater and you know breaks this taboo, and everyone thinks that she will be destroyed by the goddess Pele, mm-hmm. but she comes out alive and says it's because she called on Jesus to protect her or whatever. It's an interesting historical moment. But this really did happen in December of 1824. But one could say it didn't work too well because we still have the curse of Pele. Curse of Pele. Now, post offices frequently receive packages with rocks and notes. In Hawaii. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Tell Pele I'm so Sorry. Oh, God. I yellowed on her beach and I'm sorry. Or please return to the beach. The story goes that if a rock or even a grain of sand is taken from Pele's domain, a curse will fall upon you. Woe to the island. So the National Park Service and post offices receive hundreds of stolen items by people frightened of the curse of Pele. For example, Karen Wade took a bottle of sand and a piece of washed-up coral home to Washington State after a family trip to Maui in 2007. Shortly after her trip, she said her two dogs went missing, she lost her home, and ended a 17-year relationship with her husband. She believed the curse played a role in all these events. She said, we read up on Hawaii lore after we came home. We looked at our souvenirs differently after that. Woe to the island. (laughs) There have definitely been like chunks of months where if I'd had a rock to mail back to change my luck, I would have done it. I mean, like, just this must be it. Please let this be it. God, please let it be it. But I haven't had a rock. Is there any reason to believe that the rock is causing it? Is that part of the lure? I know the berries are part of the lure, but is it rocks? Is it sand? Well, so it it kind of gets complicated. There was a FOIA request done by Vice about this but they got an internal document from the national park service where a cultural interpreter was informing everybody many believe the idea of lava rocks being cursed gained traction in the 1940s or 50s when tour guides grew tired of cleaning their vehicles of lava and our black sand after tours of calipane well that's a practical explanation for it it is it's it's very practical and you know some residents hate this myth because they feel like it's kind of culturally appropriative. It's this kind of ethnic story that fits in with (laughs) outsiders' desires to test the will of the gods on whom they have no connection with. (laughs) I mean, all I can think of is the Brady Bunch. Oh my God, you're right. We should have done that as the opening story. (laughs) 
Oh no, he fell off his surfboard. Oh no, he just learned to surf yesterday. That shouldn't happen. But when speaking to, you know, anthropologists from Hawaii, they will say, of course, there's no myth or legend or saying that there's any sort of curse of Pele if you take the rocks or anything like that. It's not a taboo. Right, not specifically. Ke'ile, an Oahu-based anthropologist who specializes in Oceanic Polynesian religions, does note that while there's no curse, there is a tradition among native Hawaiians that do believe that moving any of the island's natural features without performing the appropriate rituals with a Hawaiian priest is an act of disrespect. And how Hawaiians believe that the stones have a sort of you know divine and spiritual power to them. And we mm-hmm. kind of talked about that too on the episode, that everything has kind of a, a spiritual a spirit, power yeah. to it. So, sure, you can upset it, I guess. While it's not Pele's vengeance that's getting you, maybe your conscience should act up a little bit because you've done something that's kind of disrespectful. Yeah, I, I think it's more of a question of respect. Mm-hmm. Like A great example is a few years ago, Jennifer Lawrence was filming Hunger Games mm-hmm. on Hawaii, and she told the story of like scratching her butt on a rock <laughs> and how all the Hawaiians were angry at her because she knocked one loose by scratching her butt on it. <laughs> she said, and all the Hawaiians were like, oh my God, it's the curse. She said, imitating, shaking her fist to the sky. <laughs> and I'm in the corner going, I'm your curse. I wedged it loose with my ass. You gotta love her and hate her. <laughs> so much. Well, that's Fun. Now that we've talked about Jennifer Lawrence's ass, let's move on. I don't know. I mean, we could stay there for a minute if you want. But it is interesting that there is a similar stories at the Petrified Forest. So maybe this is not so much like native folklore as it is like National Park Service folklore. Yeah, and, and they kind of have the same idea that this was probably started... Back in the day when people were just kind of picking up little pieces of rocks. Wood, right? Yeah, well, there's rocks. But it's wood. It's both. What? (laughs) It's petrified. We're not going into how fossils are made right now. Oh, but okay. Where they used to have like a display up that warned people that they shouldn't steal things and had like letters up of people writing in about the curse. And please take this back and put it back. But they have a big like pile of rocks that people send in. It's called a conscience pile. <laughs> Does Jiminy Cricket guard it? He just wags his finger at people. But it's definitely an example of, you know, some most likely just de novo, completely new created mythos that has sprung into this phenomena. Yeah, I mean, you can call it that. I mean, everyone knows about these things. Anyone that's visited there, here's the myth. I take rocks from everywhere. <laughs> it's like a compulsion of mine. So we started with the Dibbuk box. Let's go for another box. Of sorts. Chest. Of sorts. The conjure chest. Okay, you say it like you're joking. The conjure chest. You say, you say it like it's going to be a silly thing. But this thing, this piece of furniture from Kentucky has taken over my life. I cannot believe we actually got this episode out on time. Barely. So it starts with the like, most meh. Like, I'm totally going to be able to pr- disprove this in like seven 
seconds. Like it started as one of the tiny little pieces we were going to do for this episode because it is one of those things, as we said about the limbo lady that is on all the list. And it's just like this little blurb and there's really not that much information about it on the internet. So Jacob Cooley, a slave owner in antebellum Kentucky wanted a chest made for his new child, which he assumed would be a son. He told his slave Hosea what he wanted and Hosea set to work. Upon its completion, however, Cooley decided that the chest wasn't what he asked for, and in a rage, he beat Hosea to death. The other slaves... Damn, on- dude. <laughs> I know. The other slaves on Cooley's plantation were so angered by this act of cruelty that they convinced their conjure man to place a death curse on the chest of drawers which Cooley had gifted to his son, despite his insistence that it was not what he wanted. Cooley's firstborn son was the first to die of the curse, followed by his second-born son. It is reported that a full 16 members and descendants of Cooley's family have died from the cursed chest, which now resides in a museum in Kentucky. That's a scary story. A chest that's been conjured, brought death onto uncountable people. (laughs) Countless people. Countless. hate when people say countless. If you can count that high, it's not countless. You just don't have time. Whatever. So, I did some digging. This is quite hard to track down. But I found out from the Kentucky Historical Society that really does have the conjure chest. Really do. Really do. That it was donated by one Virginia C. Maine. Okay, so we have a real chest at least. We do have a real chest. And from the real chest, you Google and you Google and you Google and you find out that Virginia C. Maine published a set of quaint little books in the 60s oh yes based on the writing of her mother were these like shirley jackson like scary stories no (laughs) just like flannery o'connor southern gothic not on purpose so what's the book called well there's several the first one was written by this woman virginia carrie hudson when she was 10 and it's called Oh, ye jigs and juleps. Oh, oh, that sounds positively Southern. It is. And it was written by a 10 year old and it's quite amusing. Mm. She had a stutter. So her, her teacher recommended that she write in order to express herself more fluidly. And that's what that was about. And then years later, her daughter decided that more of her work needed to see the light of day. And so she published these letters that her mother had sent her in a collection. Yes called flap doodle trust and obey i'm sorry what flap doodle trust and obey and this is far been long out of print but we have a copy got it right here real book with illustrations only took a month or so to get here (laughs) (laughs) so these are all from virginia carrie hudson to her daughter virginia also called virginia and so this story of the conjure chest comes from flap doodle trust and obey you are sure as shooting right sir so each letter has an illustration on the header mm-hmm. and this one features a quite fanciful treasure chest mm-hmm. lots of filigree and a, a cute little owl on top of it <laughs> Are you mocking my my scary story? I would never. And it starts, and it's titled, Mama Relates the Tale of a Conjured Chest. Wait, 
you missed it. You missed the best part. My dear little plum. Are you going to channel your mother to read this? Yes. I think it sounds more like your sister, but whatever. Settle in, folks, for the frightening tale of the conjure chest. It has been featured on many a website and has scared the shit out of Zach Bagans. <laughs> Bro, get your brown pants on. Get ready for the story. My dear Lil Plum. <laughs> I'm sending you the chest, but first I want you to know it's an incredible story. God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to bless your great, great, great grandmother with a large family of daughters. And your great, great, great grandfather, a harsh Yankee, impressed upon his many daughters the absolute necessity of money. The oldest daughter, Ellie, was her father's most willing disciple and readily learned the lessons which he considered to be number one. Having quickly caught his spirit, she trained her ears to detect the sound of jingling coins, and she found them in the money bags of one John Cooley, a southerner thrice her age. When she rubbed his old bald head, and from his pockets rolled all that her heart desired. No. I'm scared. <laughs> Should be. Ellie strutted through life with an invisible bluebird perched upon her bouncing bustle. Cotton mills kept the money bags full. They lived in a mansion overlooking a willow-fringed river. Now, all that would have been seventh heaven, except for the chest. This is how the tragic tapestry was woven. My own God-fearing grandmother, God rest her soul, recited this tale to me while I crouched beneath her sewing machine and turned the wheel whenever her back ached. My grandmother, the Lord bless her, never told a lie, but some dull-witted people... Having heard this story will tell you she never spoke the truth. Now, John Cooley's father, Jacob, had a twin named Esau. Esau was a good man, but Jacob was the devil incarnate. Preparations for Jacob's firstborn included a hand-carved chest made by a slave named, as I recall, Hosea. The finished product did not gratify Jacob's whim, so... He administered such a beating to Hosea that the poor old servant died. In those times, the revenge of the slaves always took a form of a conjure. To avenge Uncle Hosea's death, they cast a spell on the chest. Now, having sprinkled dried owl's blood inside the drawers, they chanted with appropriate moanings and rhythmic swayings the dirge of the conjure and implanted within the chest an evil power that would bring down the curse on every owner of the chest for countless generations. Countless. The chest was taken from Hosea's workshop to the nursery, but the child for whom it had been made died. This innocent baby was the first victim of the curse. His brother's child, in whose room the chest was later placed, was stabbed on his 25th birthday by a body servant, second victim. I mentioned that Ellie, Jacob's daughter-in-law, was quick to catch on. Well, she had the chest put up in her attic. Now, while the cobwebs encircled its conjured drawers, we must change scenes. Into the dull and inhospitable drawing rooms of Jacob Cooley House one day stalked an Irishman named Sean, just 19 and sufficiently witty and handsome to make him less than welcome. Melinda, who is my own great-grandmother, eloped with Sean, 
and after they left the altar, they of course had no place else to go. But Melinda thought of her rich sister Ellie and the newly wedded couple headed her direction. She, in turn, headed them toward one of John's Tennessee farms. Farm life was lonely and hard, and in exchange for the love of a pauper, Melinda was only rewarded with wagon loads of babies and a dreary routine of household chores. The nearest candlelight was many dark miles away. Melinda wilted under the coarseness of breeding animals and slaughtering them for food. Worms in the tobacco, bugs in the potatoes, ashes on the hearth, fleas under the carpet, chiggers in the grass, ceaseless mooing, bleeding, and cackling, and always the fretful wet-bottomed children. Oof, heavenly days. This is a horror story. Right? Because Melinda enjoyed no beauty save the sunset, Ellie thought she might cheer her sister by sending her the chest, and so she did. Sean decided to do something about their circumstances in New Orleans. Hardly had the chest arrived, and Sean departed before Melinda ailed and died. She became the third victim of the curse. Within seven days, Sean walked into a lowering stage plank and crushed his head. Fourth victim. The large brood of children were left to be divided up like pups. Ellie, feeling unequal to the ordeal of making this choice, dispatched John to Tennessee. Cooley lined up the children and surveyed them with close scrutiny. The baby, Evelyn, aged three, won his heart. The only one of the youngsters to come forward and hold out her hands. Evelyn now enjoyed every conceivable luxury. In the setting of a rich man's ward... She was a sparkling jewel. Until the day she left his house at 16, she never brushed her own hair or picked up her own clothes or washed her own hair. At 16, she graduated, having taken what was called then a teacher's exam and receiving the highest grade ever accorded a female. Although only 16, she was given full responsibility of a country school. I feel like I'm sitting around your mom's kitchen table. I do too. To prepare herself for her new work, she went into a shoe store to make a purchase, and there she met a clerk, a Scotsman, named Malcolm Johnson, a small and polite man who was cute, I thought, even in his old age. Within weeks, Malcolm had married Evelyn, and a year later, she gave birth to my own mother. I remember Grandma Evelyn as an arrestingly beautiful and magnetically attractive woman who had sad eyes and a quick smile and more sense in her big toe than all her children had in their own heads. The chest now came into her possession. The wedding clothes of Arabella, an orphan who lived with them, went in the chest and soon her young husband died, fifth victim. The baby clothes of Arabella's child went into the chest and the child died, sixth victim. The wedding clothes of Esther, the wife of Evelyn's eldest son, went into the chest and she died, seventh victim. Aunt Sarah hid in the chest the gloves and scarves she'd knitted for her son's Christmas, and he fell through a trestle and was killed two days before the celebration of our dear Lord and Savior's birth. Eighth victim. Nora's wedding clothes went into the chest, and Gardner ran off and left her. Ninth victim. Ruthie's baby clothes went into the chest, and she was injured and died a cripple. Tenth victim. When Malcolm died, my grandmother had much wealth, but her heart was as empty as a rain barrel in August. To lessen the memory of her great loss, she moved her duds, including the chest, from the master bedroom into the guest room. But humiliated by Nora's unwillingness to live at home and heartsick over her son's marriage, she took her own dear life, eleventh victim. Then the chest was brought to my house. Into the chest went the first baby's clothes, and he died. Twelfth victim. I put your sister's baby clothes into the chest, and she was stricken with infantile paralysis. Thirteenth victim. After I put your wedding clothes into the chest, your husband died. Fourteenth victim. 
Stanley Morris put his hunting clothes in the chest, and he was shot. Fifteenth victim. Robbie put his clothes in the chest, and within a week, he was stabbed through his hand at school. Sixteenth victim. By this time, your God-fearing mama, who holds no truck for four-leaf clovers or broken mirrors or walking under ladders, begin to wonder, were these mere coincidences or something more? I asked poor old Annie if she knew how to break a conjure, and she said, oh my, yes, her face registering an exultant excitement in anticipation of such a ritual. First, you've got to get a dead owl, one brought to you by a good friend. You can't ask him. He's just got to be brought by. Well, that's going to be hard to get. My heart fell flat and hope faded. When would a friend just happen by with a dead owl? Then, quite suddenly, I remember the stuffed owl in Tom's room. Johnny Nelson, a good friend, had just brought by that day. Then, Annie added, you need fresh green leaves from a willow tree planted by a good friend. Honey, do you remember that funny-looking old Mrs. Mason? Well, she certainly had been my friend, and years ago she planted a willow tree near her doorway on First Street. Maybe the tree had long since died or been blown down in a storm. I got in the car and drove hurriedly to her place, and heaven's alive. She is long gone, but her tree is now a big one and almost hides the whole house from view. Willows mean sorrow, Annie explained. And you got to have one leaf for each curse. And I walked into the yard as though I held the mortgage and plucked 16 large leaves and a couple of extra just in case. And then the astonished tenant looked out in amazement and I nodded courteously to him as I returned to the car. Now, Annie's punctilious directions were punctuated with oohs and ahs. You got to put the willow leaves in a black pot and boil them from sunup to sundown. At the same time, keeping an eye open on the curse-breaking owl. Annie had perched Tom's disheveled owl precariously atop the stove, and that vacant, staring owl made me think of Poe's horrible raven or the ancient mariner's albatross. Now, you gotta put the liquid in a jug, Annie explained methodically, with a wisdom which seemed to flow from some distant fountain, and bury the jug with a handle to the east, cause the sun comes from the east and the devil hates the light. And you must bury it under a flowering bush because flowers mean love and promise. Just beyond the kitchen window, the heart-shaped lilacs were in gorgeous bloom. I followed Annie's directions as carefully as though they were those strange recipes from magazines. Several days following our curse-breaking ritual, Annie confided that if we were successful in exercising the evil spirit from the chest, one of us would surely die when the leaves of the flowering bush dropped. In September, I sadly hung up old Annie's cane in the kitchen. Looking through the window, I watched a gust of wind shake the last leaves from the lilac bush. The dry leaves settled gently, playfully on the ground and covered the spot where the drug still lies. Some folks will tell you that's the biggest bunch of lies ever arranged into a bouquet of words. Well, let them scoff. But don't you doubt your poor old mother, my little pet, for what I've told you is gospel truth. One day... When I'm left alone, I'm going to write a book, and I'll call it simply The Chest. And I'll put into it all the southern lore and doings that I know, and who knows, it might even be published. And bless me, I want it to make the hair on every single Doubtin' Thomas and Yankee who reads it stand up straight as a maple. The trials and tribulations of all who've owned the chest are at an end. Trust and obey, my dear little one. And don't forget your prayers. Love, Little Mama. Terrifying. <laughs> well, I mean, she was right. This is making plenty of Yankees' hair stand up like maypoles. <laughs> I've seen it. 
so it's interesting because you know, we talk about sympathetic magic. Mm-hmm. And this normally does require some kind of direct contact, hair, teeth, fingernails, blood, sweat. You especially see this in kind of some of the voodoo traditions we talked about in the last few episodes. But it can also be effective when using garments. Like clothing. Yeah. So like what goes in the chest. Yeah, exactly. Now Fraser wrote, Strained and unnatural as this idea may seem to us, it is perhaps less so that the belief of the magic sympathy is maintained between a person and his clothes, so that whatever is done to the clothes will be felt by the man himself, even though he may be far away at the time. He said in Prussia, they say that if you cannot catch a thief, the next best thing you can do is to get hold of a garment, which he may have shed in his flight. For if you beat it soundly, the thief will fall sick. The belief is firmly rooted in the popular mind. Some 80 or 90 years ago in the neighborhood of Berend, a man was detected trying to steal honey and fled, leaving his coat behind him. When he heard that the enraged owner of the honey was mauling his lost coat, he was so alarmed that he took to his bed and died. Oh, you sounded positively mama. 38th victim. (laughs) And there's definitely a lot of writing about sympathetic magic in the Kentucky mountain region. Where mama lived. And that's not just Flapdoodle. So these beliefs in witchcrafts and charms, of course, were more prevalent in the past. But the shadows, these superstitious beliefs, are still strong. And there's some really interesting examples. So sympathetic magic, in its essence, is illustrated by the image of our pictograph resorted to by witches. They will crudely scrawl upon a tree the picture of the victim or something else. And a witch wants to do black arts. This is the Kentucky witch? Of course. Specifically? Okay. Now, a witch can take a person's life with this dangerous ammunition, a small bunch of hair from a horse or cows rolled between the two hands into a small round ball, and the ball is used as a bullet. In whatever part the ball hits the picture, in the corresponding part of the victim, a wound is inflicted. In Knott County, several years ago, a man was plowing in the field and suddenly dropped dead between his plow handles. It's a strange case, and doubtless never would have been solved if it had not been for a single piece of undeniable evidence. When he fell dead, a witch ball dropped out of his mouth. This was enough. The case was investigated. It was found that a wizard, jealous of the victim, had gone into the woods, drawn his victim's picture upon a tree, taken aim, and shot a witch ball into the mouth, represented in the picture. Now, in Kentucky, you also see the use of charms for different things like inflammation, carnivorous fowls, droughts, spirits, or ghosts, warts, and many kinds of diseases. Charm against inflammation has been worked by quoting these three lines, which is also an old English charm. There were two angels came from the east. One brought fire, the other frost. Out fire in frost. And if a hawk is catching your chickens, get a stone from the bottom of the creek bread and place it in the bottom of a grate. So you can see that there's definitely some sympathetic magic and these kind of conjures that are prevalent in the area. So it's something you would have knowledge of. Just Yeah. And while we love to disprove Mama, as she said, many people would... Think it's the most biggest bunch of lies ever arranged into a bouquet of words. <laughs> while we love to do that, and that's one of our favorite things to do. I can't. I can't disprove it. All right. So let's, let's work through it in reverse. Sure. Because it's easier to do that way. <laughs> so initially, this was really difficult. And then I read her mama's granddaughter's book about her and found out that she changed the names of some people in her books 
You mean there weren't twins named Jacob and Esau? No. There were, <laughs> they were in the Bible. <laughs> Once, at least. But you remember Esau was the good one. I don't know why she flipped that script. So the story of Annie's funeral is recounted in the book. And when it's referred to later in her granddaughter's book, she cites the source for some of the information as coming from letters, which are postmarked the same year as the conjure chest letters, indicating that Annie did die the year that she wrote down the story of the conjure chest. From 1946. Like, she attends the funeral, and she actually takes a bunch of Annie's family members out to the funeral. Very colorful, as you can imagine. But she ends the story by remarking that she was truly the kindest and most patient person of any race, creed, or station I've ever known. I've tied a ribbon on her cane and hung it in the kitchen, hoping that its sanctifying presence may instill in all who look upon it some small portion of the greatest qualities that she possessed. So not only did she pass away, the cane is repeated, that detail is repeated, and it does seem like it really affected Mama. We're going to call her Mama because there's another Virginia and that's confusing. Is Mama. It's Mama. Trust and obey, darling. So the next claim in the book is that Robbie's hand gets stabbed at school, which, fine. It's not written up in any newspapers, but a kid getting his hand stabbed at school might not be, even though they wrote up a lot of pointless bollocks in the local newspaper. They're very fond of sending in like little snippets. I mean, I wouldn't send that into the paper. I'd be a little embarrassed, I guess, maybe. But I believe Mama. Like, I'm willing to to give her a pass on that one. I'm surprised she wasn't like, and he deserved it. (laughs) Hey, so then we move on to Stanley Morris, right? The family friend who put his clothes in the chest and got shot. Right, and just happened to be his hunting clothes. You might think, there's no way you can prove that. This is just some random person who stopped by. This is... Like the 1940s at this point. People are getting shot in war like every day. And there was actually a spike in hunting accidents that year. And you're not going to just read through all that and randomly know who was at their house. (laughs) That's where you're wrong. I went a little crazy. And I found that. So on Friday, June 13th, 1947, the Courier Journal of Louisville reports, Coroner Rule's killing of Powell was accident. Deputy Coroner Joseph Beck yesterday gave a verdict of accidental death in the shooting Wednesday of Kenneth Ballou. Ballou was shot by Richard Cleveland, 17, a friend, while the latter was displaying a Luger pistol at his home. So I know it's him because I recognize her son's name as the person who accidentally shot him. And I know that a mom is going to censor that and be like, he got shot. Passive voice. How Can't about imagine that? who did it. Mm-hmm. He just walked right into that bullet. But also, I recognize the address that's given in the paper as being where they live. And that seems like it sews that up pretty tidy, unless he's shot more than one person. You never know. So two victims. Proven. She says that she put her daughter's wedding clothes in the chest and her first husband died, which, damn, mama, that was passive aggressive. (laughs) That's what I was thinking. He just wasn't worth nothing. He just put his clothes in the chest and let that take care of it. That's how I would use the chest. But anyway, so her daughter did marry a man named Wilbur Lee Brister. Then she later married a man named Kurt Lee. And Wilbur, it does seem, met a very untimely death. It's in the Breckenridge News of Cloverport, Kentucky, on Monday, December 11th of 1944. Wilbur Lee Brister died after operation. William Lee Brister, 31, 
assistant manager of export from Brown and Williamson Tobacco Company, and another paper listed as a tobacconist, <laughs> died Saturday at Petersburg, Virginia Hospital. He was stricken with appendicitis Wednesday and died following an operation. And she'd go on to marry after that. No good tobacconist died. She did. She married a man who owned racehorses. They traveled all over the world with their racehorses. It is Kentucky, after all, and that's the thing people do there, I'm told. So that would make him her first husband, and that would make him dead. Did her sister have infantile paralysis? I cannot find a direct mention of that. What is infantile paralysis? Usually that term is used for polio victims. Okay, so it does mention that the sister is ill. The sister lives with the grandmother for an extended amount of time. And she does have a sister. She says that her first child died in the book about her grandmother. Her granddaughter writes, Their children were Virginia, Anne, and Richard. The firstborn son, presumably named Kirtley, lived only for a few days after birth. He died in Versailles, Kentucky, on July 8th. 1915. His loss pervades my grandmother's religious writings. Okay, so we do have the infant son's death as well. Yes. And then Evelyn is actually Eliza. This is where we get into complicated analogs. I literally filled up three legal pads. Let's call her Mama's Grandma. Okay, Mama's Grandma. IRL Eliza. So we know that her grandfather, Mama's grandfather, John, died in 1908. And we also know that grandmother died three years later. Mama's mama, Jessie, reported the death to the coroner. And I know that because I have her death certificate. It does not say cause of death suicide. What's it say? So it says she died of inflammation of the stomach and bowels. Okay. And contributing factors were stomach congestion. Okay. So that could be something like appendicitis, actually. Or poison. Oh, God. So she committed suicide. Okay, okay. So I'm not saying mom, mama's grandma was murdered. I wouldn't. You never know. You never know. But if Jessie, her mother, was the one saying that she thought it was suicide and she's the one that reported the death, we know that people don't report suicides as suicides. I'm open to the possibility of that being true. And also, I don't put it past mama to think that she committed suicide by putting her own clothes in the chest. Oh, yeah. I also don't put that faster. But she does die. So she can be a victim, sure. (laughs) Interestingly, like, this is something that, like, added to the credibility of the story for me, is, like, she does not say that her grandfather, who died... Was part of the conjure chest. Curse. Yeah. just wasn't. It was interesting. Okay, and so then she says that Ruthie's baby clothes went in the chest, and she died a cripple. Okay. This is an analog for another one of Mama's Mama's sisters, Mama's aunts. And I did find her obit. So Breckenridge News, Cloverport, Kentucky. March 21st of 1883. Death of an interesting little girl. Claire Louise, infant daughter of Mr. and Miss John D. Gregory, died at the residence of her parents in the city on Tuesday morning and was in her 11th year at the time of her death. At the age of three years, she became afflicted with spinal disease, and from that time forward was a great sufferer, and much of the time was prostrate and unable to sit or walk. The most skillful appliances known to modern surgery were used. While they afforded great relief yet, they failed to restore, and the most they could be 
affected was to assuage pain and enable her to walk with the aid of a crutch. She had become so inured to pain and the privation of being unable to join other children in their sports and give that the virtue of fortitude was cultivated to a wonderful degree and little onus as she was familiarly called was a subject of the tender sympathy of all who knew her little onisa was not made for earth so the next claim is that nora had her wedding clothes put in the chest and that gardner that scamp ran off and left her and so this is most likely an analog for another one of the siblings. And it's kind of interesting and gossipy. So Nellie was married to a man named Frederick Frazee. And I have an announcement here from the Breckenridge News, as per usual. Mr. Fred W. Frazee and Miss Nellie Gregory, two of Cleverport's most prominent young people, were married last Wednesday afternoon at 5 o'clock in Louisville. The ceremony was performed in the presence of Mr. Frank Warfield, an uncle of Mr. Frazee, and a cashier of the American National Bank. Sister, Miss Jenny Warfield, Mr. R.N. Hudson of this city, a brother-in-law of the bride, and Mr. Arthur Board, a friend of the groom. The engagement of Mr. Frazee and Miss Gregory was known to only a few, and their marriage was a surprise to many of their friends. Mr. Frazee, the son of Mr. Frank Frazee, the well-known merchant of this city, an associate of his father's in business here, he has been very successful. Miss Gregory is the daughter of Mr. and Mrs. John D. Gregory, one of Cleverport's most attractive and popular young ladies. Mr. and Mrs. Fracy left Louisville Wednesday evening at 6 o'clock for Washington, Atlantic City, and other eastern points. They will return about the middle of next week and take up their residence here. We know that when... Her father, John, dies in 1908. Part of his obituary states that in, on September 11th of 1866, he married Miss Eliza Ryan, and they have the following children, Ernest Gregory, Mrs. R.N. Hudson, Mrs. Fred Frazee, and Mrs. E.C. Bryce. All were in attendance at the funeral, which was postponed from Sunday until Monday morning on account of Mr. Gregory and Mrs. Bryce and her children who came from Arkansas. So in 1908, she's still married. We know that in 1915, she is listed in the Breckenridge News Society section as Miss Nellie Gregory on Wednesday, October the 27th of 1915. Quote, Miss Nellie Gregory of Louisville spent Sunday the guest of Mr. and Mrs. Ernest Gregory. So she's back to her maiden name here. Now, Mama's grandma died in 1914. So at the time of her death... Nellie would have still been single, and it would have been quite the scandal for a young divorcee to be living on her own, especially when her ailing mama was all alone in her house. Now, she remained single for about five years after Eliza's death, and her marriage to Mr. Grover Cleveland Welch was announced by Jessie, or her sister, Mama's Mama, and her husband in the Breckenridge News of Claryport, Kentucky on Wednesday, August 13th of 1919. Society Items of Local Interest Marriage Announced Mr. and Mrs. R. N. Hudson of Louisville announced their marriage of their sister, Miss Nellie Gregory, to Mr. Grover Welch of New Albany, Indiana. Mr. Welch has just returned from war service in France. After a short trip in the north, Mr. and Mrs. Welch will be at home in New Albany with their many friends. And here's just a little more gossip to fill out that story. 
On Fred Frazee's death certificate, it lists that he's divorced. However, on Nora's second marriage certificate, it says that her first marriage was dissolved by, quote, death. Mmm, mmm, bit of a contention there. Okay, and then we come to another outlandish claim. This is the nephew, Sarah's son, whose gloves and cap that she'd knitted for him for Christmas were put in the chest and fell through the train trestle. So I did find the story, and Sarah is the wife of... Explaining genealogy out loud is very complicated. Sarah, the aunt who put the gloves in the chest, is married to... John's brother. John is Mama's grandfather. From Wednesday, December the 15th, 1909. So it wasn't quite two days before Christmas, but it was in December. And this is from the Breckenridge News, of course, our paper of record here. Falls into death's arms. Emmett Gregory plunges 30 feet over trestle Friday night. Was almost home funeral held Sunday. One of the most distressing accidents that ever happened in Cleverport occurred Friday night when Emmett Gregory stepped from the westbound L&H and St. L passenger train at 11 o'clock and fell over a trestle 30 feet to the ground. He died at 5 o'clock Saturday morning. The train was approaching the station and had whistled when an air brake pipe bursted and the train stopped on the trestle above. Skillman's branch a few yards from the station. Mr. Gregory, thinking the train was near enough the station for him to get off, stepped off the train and fell into the branch. A passenger saw him fall. Immediately, men went to his rescue, and soon he was taken to the infirmary of his uncle, Dr. A. A. Simons. The deceased was 32 years of age. The word of his sad death was sent to his wife and children at once. What a way to go. I know. I wonder if it was the goat man. <laughs> Wasn't it, that in Kentucky? I bet there is one in Kentucky. <laughs> I'm sure there is. I bet there is. Could be. Could be. All right. So the next claim is that the oldest son's wife dies. And I found it. I dragged it down. So the Courier Journal in Louisville on October 24th of 1895. And all their listings of all the gossip, such as, they went visiting friends, or they went for a ride in their car. Ernest Gregory and Miss Stella Stone Cipher were married Tuesday evening. The Reverend O.E. Palmer officiating. That was in October of 1895, and... And so on, on March of 1897, we have a news report. The remains of Miss Gregory, wife of Ernest Gregory, who died at New Albany, Indiana last week, were brought here for internment Thursday. So she's actually interred in the family plot in Cloverport. And again, this is one of the things that is cited as upsetting Mama's grandma. It does seem like it really affected her. Mm-hmm. You know, like she's not, her maiden name is not listed on her plaque. Like people have been on Ancestry.com a lot. And a lot of people like think it's a missing child. You know, like think it's mm-hmm. a, you know, like they don't know that it's actually a daughter-in-law because anyway, because it looks just like all the other kids. Speaking of, what yeah. about the orphan? I can't find the orphan. The orphan has driven me insane. I do know that her little sister, mama's grandmama's little sister, Louisa, lived with them for a time 
while she was attending school. And she died young. And there are accounts of her death in the newspaper. And, you know, in that little gossip section, it, of course, mentions that they've gone to visit her. The claim on that is that her husband and her child died. And her husband actually outlived her by a long stretch. So I don't know if that is it or not. Okay. So here is where things get tricky. This is where it gets tricky? It's all been tricky. Actually, that part was pretty straightforward. I found most of that stuff pretty easily. Stanley was tricky. But the changing custody, the moment when the parents die and Eliza slash Evelyn goes to live with the Cooleys, with the family who has this chest. Jacob Cooley. Yes. Our villain in the story. Our villain in the story. She goes to live with the family. And that gets complicated to track. And we know that Eliza's parents did disappear between 1850 and 1860. She's listed on a census as living with her mother and father in 1850. But in the 1860 census, she's listed as living with another family. And we know at the time of her marriage, her guardian's name is George Polk. George Polk is married to her eldest sister, Mary, Amanda. Now, in the story, this would have been her mother's sister, but this could have all very easily been lost in translation because it is hard to pin down. Yeah, I mean, it's like listening to your mom's recount, this like continuous genealogy. Like, how do you know all that? When I repeat it back, it doesn't make the same amount of sense. But she was taken in as a ward by people in her family. It seems most likely that George equals John Cooley, not Jacob. And interestingly, on her marriage certificate, there's a little note pinned in the registrar. It's like the only one like this. And it says, Cloverport, Kentucky, September 7th, 1866. This certifies that I have given my consent for John T. Gregory to marry Eliza Ryan, my ward, George Polk, guardian. Yes, it sets that that might be... That definitely George Polk had taken her in. But a twist. A twist it comes. Because things are more fun when they're complicated. And there's nothing anyone loves listening to more than family tracing history stuff. It's possible that she lived with Malvina Polk. Malvina was originally named Malvina Ryan. And she was a sister to Eliza's father. So this would be her aunt. And she married a man named Thomas Polk. And they all live in Tobinsport, Indiana. And that's right by Cloverport, Kentucky. And the reason that this is a maybe is because of Malvina's obituary, which was also printed in the Breckenridge News in Cloverport, Kentucky. Right, so in it, it says Malvina Pope was married to Thomas Polk January 14th of 1827, by whom she had four children, two of whom survive her. She was always found in a full discharge of her Christian duties and always at her post. She was especially noted for her kindness to children, ever looking with a watchful eye over all within her reach. She raised a family of her own, two of her brother's children, and five grandchildren left motherless by the death of her only daughter, Miss Willie Weatherholt, and had seen after and cared for many other motherless children, the writer of this being one of the children. So in that, we see that she cared for two of her brother's children. But on the census that I found, the Ryan children that are listed as living with her are two of the older ones because there are like six or seven of them. So that goes along with the idea of them being divided up like pups. But however, 
this comes about. It seems that the Polk family equals the Cooley family. Okay. So we have a most likely real name for our villain. Something Polk. Something Polk. And you know who is a Polk? Uh, President James K. Polk. That's the one. Now, originally, when I was reading this, I thought that this might just be kind of misremembering Kind of the October surprise in 1844, the thing du jour to say about James K. Polk was was that he was an ultra slaveholder. An ultra slaveholder. In them up to his ears. Oh my. So this is an interesting tactic that was trotted out uh, during the election because, you know, we have to slander him some way. And he was known for being very boring. He was known for being dull. And there's really not much to say about him. And Henry Clay, like, played poker and drank whiskey and had all these, like, vices. So they went for the slave thing, which was interesting because Henry Clay owned slaves, too. So they had to create this, like, degree. They had to create something that made James Polk owning slaves worse. So, like, Henry Clay was nice to his slaves. Yeah. So thanks for that, 1844. We're still telling that stupid Stupid story. But yeah, apparently the rumors were that he like branded his slaves with his initials on their shoulders as soon as he purchased them and that he, like I said, was in them up to his ears. And people did brand slaves. Oh, yeah. But I think it was terribly out of fashion and not something that was done by gentlemen. That's what James K. Polk's people will tell you. Uh Uh-huh. So this was much talked about and much circulated, and it was the rumor. And if you look at like incendiary materials, like propaganda from 1844. Ultra slaveholder. Ultra slaveholder, James K. Polk. And so I thought that may have been it. It's not crazy. I was like, maybe she just like assumed Polk and thought maybe like his brother had him. And then I realized, you know, it was pushed especially hard in states like Ohio and Kentucky and Indiana. Swing states. Yeah. The equivalent. Well, and border states. Yes. And, you know, he's all manifest destiny. And they're like, we don't want manifest destiny. Stop it. I was like, well, that's interesting. That's a cool note. And then I was like, well, wait, wait, wait. My growing up and exposure to the idea of slavery is that they were in the fields like those people were definitely not making things was that a thing and i knew that it was like popular in some urban areas like new orleans there was more of that but apparently it was quite the thing about how there was actually considerable population of enslaved artisans in kentucky north carolina virginia and tennessee why there because there's less arable land less land suitable for farming because they're more mountainous regions And there's actually a practice of hiring out these enslaved artisans, such as furniture makers, cabinet makers, blacksmiths, weavers, etc. And so I thought there might be records of people like hiring out anyone with like a specialized trade. And so I was like, maybe I can find that. And as I went digging, I found something that was actually even more interesting than that. Really? I did. I found the collection of slave narratives, a folk history of slavery in the United States from interviews with former slaves uh, that is housed in the Library of Congress. And in one particular interview with a woman named Ellen Cragen, conducted by Samuel Taylor in 1939. And so we talked about the slave narratives being collected by the Writers Project. Yes. During the Great Depression. And she was interviewed in Little Rock, Arkansas, and... For age, they have typed out 
on a typewriter around 80 or more. (laughs) Very old lady. There's also a handwritten note that says, escapes on a cow. I was intrigued. I was intrigued. In this narrative, my mother was named Lavinia Polk, and she got plumb away on account of that. I was raised by my mother. She went to Atchison, Kansas, rode all the way through the woods on that cow, tore her clothes all off on the bushes. My father was Indian, and his master's name was Tom Polk. Tom Polk was my mother's master, too. Tom Polk. Right? Huh. So that's our coolie equivalent, maybe. Maybe. Tom Polk was my mother's master, too. It was Tom Polk's boy that my mother beat up. What? Yeah, she beat him with a rod off her weaving loom. And he told her that he would tell them not to whip her anymore if she would stop beating him. How'd that work out? Held for a while. And then she ran away on a cow named Dolly. Amazing. My father wouldn't let nobody beat him neither. One time, when something he had didn't suit Tom Polk, I don't know what it was, they cut sores on him that he died with. They cut him with a rawhide whip, you know, and they took salt and rubbed it on the sores. Papa never slept in the house. They got scared, and he was scared of them. He used to sleep in the woods. Well, that's crazy. So we have a slave narrative describing a Tom Polk beating a slave that did something that didn't suit him. And then there's even like a little bit of paranormal or psychic ability attributed to her father. She says... One night, my father called me outside and told me that he saw the elements opened up and soldiers were fighting in the heavens. Don't you see them, honey, he said, but I couldn't see them. And he said there was going to be a war. Interesting. So he's like prophesying the Civil War. And it also says that he's Indian, or at least partially Indian, and that they're afraid of him and he sleeps in the woods. So you can see how you might've had this reputation of being a bit of a conjure man, or that might be something that's present in the environment at least. Definitely. And then later on, she refers to another prophecy that's given saying that Dr. Polk's wife's father, old man Woods said that they weren't going to be free, that God had showed him this. There's lots of prophesizing. (laughs) Well, that's more important because of the names. Okay, so we have Dr. Thomas Polk. Right, and the wife's father is Old Man Woods. So we know that her maiden name is most likely Woods. His wife. And also, Ellen lived in Little Rock, Arkansas. And Eliza's son, Ernest, lived in Little Rock, Arkansas from 1908 onward. And we know that he died after Eliza and that she went to visit him. We know this from the society section of the Breckenridge News. <laughs> Thank God for that. Yes. So is this Dr. Thomas Polk the Thomas Polk we've been talking about? The Malvina's husband, Thomas Yeah. Polk. I don't think he is. Okay. So it seems, in fact, that he is actually another nefarious character, or a nefarious character. We don't know that that Tom was bad. From the Polks and their kinsmen, which was written in 1912-ish that chronicles their entire genealogy. There's a little blurb. It says, Dr. Thomas G. Polk, the third child of Dr. William J. Polk and Mary Long Polk, was born in Mecklenburg County, North Carolina, December 5th, 1825, and died in Decatur, Alabama, June 14th of 1877. He graduated from Jefferson Medical College in Philadelphia and was an assistant surgeon in the Mexican War. 
on account of poor health during the Civil War, being unable from more active field duties, who's a volunteer aide in the staff of General J.C. Tappan at Banks' defeat on Red River, and also served at the Battles of Vicksburg, Mansfield, and Pleasant Hill. So that's like right in my neck of the woods. Anyway, Dr. Thomas G. Polk married in 1851 Miss Lavinia C. Wood, a descendant of the distinguished Mason family of Virginia, by whom he had issue, Mary, Caroline, Griselda, and William. Okay, so we know he's a doctor. We found out his wife's name and maiden name, his kids' names. So why do you think this is connected to our main family, our Conjurtess family, to Mama's family? This is not the Thomas Polk that they're directly related to. Well, Yankee plunder. You blame this on the Yankees? I blame everything on the Yankees. Those horn devils, carpet bag and scum. So there's an article that is republished in the Paris News of Paris, Texas in 1946 that says, It was while engaged in, the, in this work for two days near Greenville that General Reynolds of the Federal Army, who is from Missouri, I think, restored Mrs. Polk, wife of Dr. Thomas Polk, a pair of carriage horses that were stolen from her as the expedition against Vicksburg was descending the river. He denounced in strongest terms the acts of pillage of private property and discussed with much freedom the force of war and the objects of promotion. And so this has a Yankee general returning to Mrs. Polk, wife of Dr. Thomas Polk, some property that had been stolen. So you can assume that other things were stolen. Now you can assume this because the home that they had in Decatur actually became a headquarters for the Yankees. Really? It did. And so it stands to reason that some shit went missing. Shame. Shame on them Yankees. And we also know that... In the same air that the ultra-slaveholder propaganda was being aired, there was some more slander about, about James K. Polk. And this will tie in, I promise. So this is from, written from the Hermitage on July 12th of 1844. The Hermitage. The Hermitage. Sir, I have just received your letter of the 20th informing me that recently declared that he traveled through Tennessee at the time of Governor Polk was the first candidate for governor, and that his opponents, the Whigs, then brought the charge of his grandfather's being a Tory against him. Shame. And the Democrats of Tennessee met the charge by throwing it upon the North Carolina branch of the Polk family. That is Colonel Thomas Polk, and you desire me to state, for your information, and that of the people, what I know of the facts. In reply... I state with pleasure that I know all the old stock of the Polks. They were all good 76 Whigs. Old Colonel Thomas Polk was the first mover of independence in Mecklenburg County. And Colonel Polk, son of Thomas Polk, was twice wounded in the War of Revolution. And I think he had a brother killed in the battle. I never knew one branch of the family to be charged with Toryism before. If such a rumor were circulated during the canvas referred to, I never heard of it. I'm gratified thus to be able to give my testimony of the revolutionary services of patriotism of the Polk family, with many of whose members I have been intimate the great part of my life. So Andrew Jackson, mm-hmm. motherfucking Andrew Jackson, is weighing in, saying the Polks were no damn Tories. Right, and there's like, 
he's saying, oh, you're throwing these charges against the North Carolina branch. The other branch is the Kentucky, Indiana branch. And that is where our Polks are from. But he's saying like, oh, clearly not. And so there's this big interest in the Polks genealogy starting in 1844. Like it's in tons of papers. And there's a lot of mix up with it as well. Oh my God. It's so confusing. Like it really is because they have like basically a word bank of names. They use the same names over and over, no matter what branch they're in. They use William, James, Thomas, Charles, and Edmund. So is it feasible that Mama or her relatives could have heard of the stories about this nefarious Dr. Thomas Polk and felt that they were related to him? Oh, absolutely. And there's also direct correspondence with, like, for example, Leonidas Polk, uh, the fighting bishop of Louisiana. I feel like that should be a football team name. I think I think it is. But Leonidas Polk was in communication with some people from the Kentucky branch uh, around the time of the Civil War, and they were all trying to work out this genealogy. It's like it had been stirred up and people were interested in it. And there was this interest in proving that they were descended from signers of the Declaration. Of and, course. you know, they wanted to be related to the president. And that was cool. I have his personal correspondence from around that time. And he was definitely writing to some of them. And they were conjecturing about how they would have been related. And so... It's conceivable, absolutely, that like in trying to keep the stuff in their home from getting plundered, they sent it to their Yankee relatives because all of those Polks did fight for the Union. Interesting, interesting. In that narrative, in the account I have from Ellen Cragen, it says that there was a man on the property named Charles who went out and dug up some gold that he knew Dr. Polk had buried because he buried it to try to keep those Yankees from getting it. And he mm. took it and got, got away on a steamboat. Nice. But, um, Not a cow. No. Damn. They, had, they did have dazzling modes of transport, I do <laughs> have to say. But so there, you know, we know he's squirreling stuff away. We know they had things stolen. Sewanee, the University of the South that Leonidas Polk founded, was like all but decimated. So it's interesting. It's possible. And I bet if I keep digging, I bet if I had three more weeks, I could trace it. Like it's... I'm close. I can feel it, but I buy it. You know what? Trust and obey. All right, flat beetle. But it's interesting to see how these stories get constructed. You know, one thing I didn't mention earlier is that Jason Haxon had another theory about the Dybbuk box. And he thought that maybe, maybe the reason that Kevin Manis was being so shady about kind of giving the sources of his information is that he was in a way making up the story, but in a different way Mm. that the story did happen, but happened to his family and that the woman that escaped the Holocaust camps was his grandmother. Why would he think that? Because she did die at 103 years old and he is of Jewish descent, even though he kept acting like he didn't know nothing about no debit box. And so it's interesting how these families can create these curses. And wouldn't it be better if the curse was just a thing? If there was one thing in the house that was bad and it wasn't your family, it wasn't your people. Wouldn't it be nice if you could put it away or just not use it? So we wanted to share something with you because we do get some personal calls sometimes on our voicemail and emails and things like that. And... Usually if you email us or write us, you know, we'll definitely try to contact you. Unfortunately, with voicemail, we're not able to. So 
anyone play a voicemail that we were encouraged to share? Because maybe you can help. Hi. So this is kind of a sensitive story for me, but I still want you to listen to it. When I was younger, my grandfather was a bit too fond of me, if you catch my drift. And it went on for years, and I didn't know how to stop it. I didn't know how to protect myself. And despite me telling myself that I'm not getting bruises and that he's actually been, that it's not as bad as I'm believing it to be, I still was not happy, as I don't think anyone would going through that. The only thing that stopped him from, well, from every night was, uh, well, he died. And, you know, here's where things get extremely weird. I never told my parents I was too scared. When I moved in with my dad, my dad and my grandfather had been living together because my grandfather was too old to take care of himself. And so he ended up dying in his bed. Well, I ended up inheriting his room and all his furniture because things were financially tight thanks to the funeral. The first night that I ended up sleeping in the same bed that he, well, I ended, I ended up waiting for years to finally tell my parents. And naturally, they were horrified and they bought me all new furniture. But up until I told them, I was sleeping in the same room, in the same bed, using the same mirror as my grandfather did. I ended up dreaming that I saw his reflection in the mirror and that he was banging on the glass and he was extremely angry with me. And he kept mouthing the words, don't tell, don't tell. It scared the snot out of me and ended up putting me into tears and I was terrified. I couldn't stop thinking about it and I ended up looking at some stuff about ghosts being trapped in mirrors. Apparently the way that the sport goes is that at some funerals people will put cloths over the mirrors so the spirit of people won't get trapped. I don't I don't know. I thought my grandfather was trapped in a mirror. Am I crazy? It's really hard to find the right thing to say. First of all, I'm sincerely and deeply affected by your call. And I believe you. I believe you about everything. I don't think it's the mirror. Not in that literal way that people mean when they drape black crepe over a mirror. I don't think it's that. But when people hurt us, they leave scars. And the most dastardly thing, the most dastardly artifact is that fear that doesn't go away. Right, it may not be the object, such as a mirror, hanging in your room. But I am glad you got rid of it. Right, because that that object can bring back those memories can inflame those scars, can make it just a little bit harder to move on, just a tiny bit. That fear 
that don't tell, don't tell. It's so real. And I don't know what that manifestation was. But I know how it can feel to be that kind of afraid. And I know that the most insidious kind of ghost is one that's part of you and part of your history. And it does feel like a curse. Wherever you keep hurt and memories acquires a kind of power and acquired of energy. Whether you lock them away in a little box or you put them away in a chest. Or whether it hurts to look in a mirror. They're the secrets. They're the parts of ourselves we can't reconcile with who we know we are. The unjust loss of loved ones, the hurt inflicted upon us by others, the things we don't deserve. I think that's what so many of these stories are about. Injustice. That you have to be stronger than that. And you have to go on. And you just put it away in a little box and move on. And maybe eventually the little box does get its own kind of ghost. So go throw some berries in the fucking volcano and tell somebody. Open the box. Open the box. I'm glad you did. It's really not just a story. So, so much more. No, and we encourage anyone, anyone to go and tell and get help if you need it. It's so much more than just a story. You're right. It's more than just a story. Society 13 Podcast Network. Redefining Podcasts. Society-13.com I like to listen.